I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We're really fortunate today we have two anthropologists on the show. John, of course, he's been on a few times. And Forrest, that you've heard recently a couple times. So, um, Tom, I'm going to have you kind of jumpstart things here. Okay, absolutely. Hey, listen, guys, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today's show. And I'm going to kick it off. I've got a question from one of our listeners, and I'm just going to throw it out to John and, and Forrest. Um, so what what this guy wants to know is the Neanderthal and different early species of hominids. He wants to know if there's a possibility that they never dry that they never died out. Excuse me, they never dried out. Never died out. <laughs> we and the other, I guess. We drove them into areas that we don't habitat and he's he's referencing somebody named lloyd pies who has a theory on the creatures uh he also points out the big differences how the more robust neanderthals are different hominids uh than than us humans and i want to say that i have actually worked for a couple of neanderthals and so I know those are still around, but as far as the other ones, but I'll hand it off to you guys. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I'll take it. <laughs> John, why don't you start? Okay. okay. Um, well, I mean, genetically speaking, they're they're not gone because we know that uh, there's, uh, especially in um, parts of Europe, European populations still share some percent of their DNA with Neanderthals. And, you know, we, we don't classify Neanderthals as a separate species, right? They're Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis, which speaks to the fact that modern humans and Neanderthals could interbreed and did interbreed. So, so it wouldn't be, uh, you know, accurate to say that they're, they're extinct. Although I think that classic Neanderthal traits, right? That whole suite of of traits, the barrel chested and the, you know, the, the low forehead and the, the lack of a chin, you know, all those different traits, um, you know, heavy skull, big occipital bump, the, 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 you know, bump in the back of the skull, those traits, um, as a suite, we don't see really anymore. And so I think that for that reason, we think that that kind of modern human genetic setup got swamped out, which still kind of make, kind of makes sense because, Technologically, Neanderthals were really, I mean, comparatively, compared to modern humans, were pretty rudimentary, right? So they never picked up the, you know, quite the same extensive toolkit that we did, even though, you know, like in Israel, we were living just a few caves away from them for all different purposes. So, um, so I'm not sure if that answers the question. Now, could, could there be 
populations of you know, of that that have those traits that that are not you know commonly known or contacted. I mean, I I would never say no to that. It just it seems like you can't really prove a negative there. So that's kind of my two cents. Forrest, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, John's very accurate on uh, his uh, assessment of uh, Neanderthals. Um, we all share, I think, uh, if I'm correct on this, anywhere from 3 to 7% of uh, Neanderthal uh, DNA and all mostly Caucasian and uh, Western Asians. Um, it does occur, but rarely in people of African descent, and that's usually with people that have Caucasian background as well. Um, now, I have heard, and I'm certainly not a DNA specialist here, but uh, I have heard that uh, there are certain features that we have inherited directly from Neanderthal, which the fair skin, freckles, blue and green eyes, and um, red hair. So um, I'm sure that remains to be uh, seen, but I have heard that the DNA specialists have said that that comes directly from Neanderthals, which would go work well with uh, the climate that they lived in, which would have been the, the fairer skin would uh, 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 is usually in, uh, you know, colder climates, and that's what they dealt with in uh, their lives. Um, now, Tom and I had discussed, because years ago I had heard um, an account of Russians uh, encountering what they called a caveman. Uh, it was during, um, I believe, World War II, if I remember correctly. Um, they had actually cornered a um, caveman, so to speak, in a uh, cave in Russia, and uh, they had uh, uh, shot him, and they claimed that this might have possibly been a Neanderthal. I still hold out hope that they certainly do exist and maybe pockets in some place that we don't know. I mean, they actually were on the earth for a longer period of time than Homo sapiens sapiens were and have been. So they've outlived us quite, you know, substantially. And mm -hmm. I would like to think that they're still around somewhere. I mean, I know they exist in our DNA, but I mean, still, still exist as a population, even tiny as it might be. I guess that goes to the rest of his question, too, is, um, of course, we don't know how many hominids existed because we don't have, you know, all the fossil stuff in yet uh, and may never. But small pockets existing in very remote areas, do you think that's possible? Uh, I, I, I personally... Go ahead, John. I'll just real yeah, I'll just take it real quick. Uh, I mean, as far as as far as I'm concerned, I don't see how anyone could ever definitively say it's not possible. I mean, I just don't understand how you can do that. I mean, it just scientifically, it doesn't make any sense to make such a pronouncement. Now, could could you say, given given how far spread we are and how much we've seen and all the habitats we've we've uh, you know spread to, is it does it seem unlikely? Okay, yeah, but not possible. I would personally would never go there. Hey, John, I want to jump in real quick with a kind of a quick follow-up question. Um, and actually, this would be for um, for for Forrest and John, and that is, if if there were some sort of remnant population, no matter how 
small or maybe maybe large. Uh, what if you had to pinpoint a place on Earth where they could and would still exist? Um, I know I got two places in mind, but what would you think? Well, uh, for me, I think forests sit on it perfectly, right? I mean, they have a set of of traits of physical adaptations that are absolutely perfect to more of a northern climate. I've been their body size and shape and everything. So I think, um, you know, I, I think I can't help but think like, uh, you know, Pacific Northwest, Russia, you know, northern Asia, uh, things like that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking was, was Russia, Canada. Um, yeah, interesting. Well, that would be I, fascinating I, if they still existed. I would I would think maybe the Ural Mountains would be a good good place to look. And I didn't know it until it revealed its presence. Well, I think that's the way it is with most people. So um, I think they can remain perfectly motionless. As and and you said, chimps will remain. This is a known trait that they have. They'll remain motionless, and people will walk right on by them. And then the other one that always kind of uh, made me think a little bit was when you'd hear credible accounts of people who have shot a Bigfoot, you know, they said they've shot it, with something as large as a 30-odd six, and a thing maybe it just screamed and ran off or, you know, acted like it didn't get shot, and you're like, okay, what's what's going on here? And so they kind of tied in when you explained how that one chip that chimp that had attacked a woman it had to be euthanized and somewhere between i don't know five to nine shots is what it took i believe a nine millimeter to uh to you know to euthanize it yeah the police officer that said he was highly disturbed about having to have uh shot the animal uh, knowing first off that it was somebody's pets, but then he had seen uh, what the animal had done to this woman, and he had completely obliterated, obliterated, I can't even say that word, obliterated the woman's uh, face. And um, that was not the owner. That was actually a friend of the owner's that uh, that it happened to. And um, he said he shot this thing. He just emptied his uh, uh, weapon into the animal, and then the thing went in, and uh, Travis went in and crawled in his bed and literally pulled his blanket over his head in the bed and died in his own uh, uh, bed that he slept in. And um, they ha chimps have a denser muscle mass than what we do. And um, it's, it, it, they can take more than what we can take. That's what really caught my attention is the higher uh, bone muscle density. And John, you and I have talked it. I asked you about that question last time you're on the show because uh, we've heard um, that Sasquatch has somewhere between, well, you know the number a little better than I do, somewhere between eight to 12 times our muscle density, bone and muscle density. So again, this just sort of reinforces that. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, Certainly, a whole different. I mean, a whole different. Uh, I don't want to say skeletal, muscular, musculoskeletal system. It's not a different system. It's just it's way more robust, right? I mean, it's a different. It's a different kind of locomotion, 
um, you know, it's 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 not just quadrupedal; it's it's bipedal to an extent. It's brachiating in the trees. It's, it's all kinds of things, right? So that would take tremendous upper um, upper body uh, strength, and which we would include, include, of course, chest muscles and things like that. So it doesn't. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that that it was much more difficult to take down than than what you would normally expect. What is the um... I've heard a number that uh, an average chimp is four to five times stronger than, uh, you know, a man who's about six feet, six foot tall. Have you heard this? And what are your thoughts? Personally, I haven't heard what the number is. Maybe Forrest knows, but I've not personally heard an exact number. I was always taught that they have a strength four to five times ours. Uh, the only, uh, I think you and I talked about this, Tom, I'm not particularly fond of chimpanzees um, <laughs> because I still, <laughs> and you know why, I still bear a scar on my upper bicep from one because in my uh, earlier years and my stupidity, I didn't realize that you had to feed the alpha male before you oh. fed the subordinates and uh, I was promptly uh, bit and um, <laughs> I, I paid the price for that stupidity. And so I never wanted to work with the chimpanzees after that, but, uh, they can be a brutal lot. And, um, but you know what? So can man. And I always find it ironical that if you follow some of these, and I like to watch the YouTube channels about, uh, Jane Goodall and such as that. And people uh, are often amazed that, you know, Jane was attacked. Uh, on two occasions by a male chimpanzee that just decided he did not like her. And yep. she was my heroine. I thought, oh, my God, she was the greatest thing uh, to to go out there and, uh, you know, study chimpanzees and, and live with them. And I thought that was just a great thing to do. And then I heard about some of the experiences that she had, and I thought, well, maybe that wasn't such a great thing to do. And especially after the experience I had with the chimpanzee, I thought I definitely was no, that was off my uh, Christmas list. <laughs> well, and you know, that actually kind of surprised me. It was just one bite and then he let up or how did how did that go? Well, he just he just he just bit walked up and bit me in the arm. And yeah, he let go. Of course, I started screaming and uh, the, the guy that was in there with me proceeded to start screaming at him and he let go and 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 ran off to the to and he kind of like cowered in the corner like you know he knew he had done wrong i mean he was this was a chimp that had been handled a lot of times by people so i mean he knew immediately oh i i screwed up i really screwed up and i think he was he was expecting retribution for us but the only thing i wanted to do was get out of there well i can imagine um, let me ask a little bit, and this is for both of you, on the uh, locomotion of of chimps versus, well, I don't know, versus human locomotion. You know, the the chimps aren't that much. Uh, they're primarily quadrupeds. Is that right? You you want me to answer that, or you want John to? It's up for grabs. I, I mean, I can. Uh, okay, it's up for grabs. Uh, I'll Go jump in here. And John, if you yeah. hear anything, uh, you you jump into. Um, sure. They are they are 
mostly quadrupeds. Um, but they do bipedally walk. They, they're not true brachiators, but they do brachiate some. Um, your gibbons are uh, con- considered to be the true brachiators. Um, and that's when they, you know, you see in the Tarzan movies and they're swinging through the trees. Well, chimpanzees can certainly do that, but they don't do it as often as uh, other <clears throat> primates do. But they do walk bipedally, but they have, unlike humans, they have a lot of, a lot of lateral movement in their uh, pelvic region, which is, you know, mm-hmm. back and forth, back and forth. Uh, they also have a, a staggered step, which uh, is way spaced, and they walk. They walk funny, uh, but uh, um, they don't have outward uh, facing. Uh, I know I don't mean outward facing, outward leaning uh, femurs like what we have, which helps support us in a proper uh, bipedal stance. You know, you mentioned gibbons, and I'm often, I just find them fascinating. They're about, what, a meter tall, about three feet tall, roughly. And, you know, they've got arms that are uh, longer, you know, proportionally. Than longer ours. than their own, yeah, their bodies, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're yeah. both yeah. quadruped and bipedal. They're absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I don't think they're considered a great ape. They're a lesser ape, I believe. They're a lesser ape, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're a lesser ape. Yeah, And when they walk on the ground, uh, when they are on the ground, and they do walk bipedally on the ground because of their arms, they most generally will hold their arms up above their head because they're, yeah. <laughs> they actually get in their way when they're walking bipedally because they're so long. Yeah, and it's funny because they kind of like, uh, like you were saying about the chimpanzees, they kind of they kind of shift laterally as they're walking. It's actually kind of funny. I, I took my students this years and years and years ago, I took them to the zoo and we were looking at different primates, and and there was a um, a white-handed gibbon, Hylobatidae lar, in the um, in the enclosure, and and it was a it was a mating pair, and w- one of them, the male, was on the tree, hanging from the tree, brachiating, and then he saw us staring, and so he got kind of um, you know territorial, and so he shuffled down the tree, and and uh, and, and I used to tell my students, you know, gibbons are brachiators, that's what they do, that's all they do, and of course I should have known better, but. Basically ambles down the tree, you know, kind of, uh, you know, brachiates and then, you know, forehands climbing and just goes down the tree and then gets on two legs and then just walks to the end of the enclosure and just stares at us. And and that was I, I, I always think that's funny because, like, that's the primate saying, I'm a primate dummy. I'm made to do lots of different things. I can't do them perfectly, but I can do them. Right. <laughs> so this is kind of a lesson. <laughs> you know, um, talking about the intelligence, for example of primates. I don't know if either one of you have seen this. I sent this video to Will about three years ago. It's of a, maybe you guys have seen it. There are some tourists in in Africa on a river on a little flat bottom boat and they're going to, on on the other side of the river were uh, silverback gorillas. And one of the gorillas came out, it actually waded into the water to get closer to the boat. It wasn't, you know, the river wasn't that wide. And then suddenly the gorilla looks down the river at something and everybody in the boat looks down to see what the gorilla is looking at. He did that intentionally. It was a deception. The minute everybody looked, he put his hands into water, just splashed the heck out of him and then took <laughs> off running. And I've it just, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's it's intelligence. Hilarious. 
Yeah, but it's smart. How did it know that it could that if I look down there, these other primates are in the boat are going to look where I'm looking, and that's my opportunity. Because primates know primates. That's they right. do. <laughs> well, they have, um, right. I mean, of all of all prime of all mammals next to us, they have the biggest brains, right? I mean, so and the emphasis on learned behavior, so observation, memory, things like that. Yeah, absolutely, it's hilarious. Well, and here's the thing. This creature is a predictor of human behavior. The gorilla was. And Will, you and I have said time and time again that Bigfoot is an incredible predictor of our behavior. They know almost as well, if not equally as well, what we're going to do in any given situation. And that allows them to kind of think ahead. And and they watch us a lot. Yes. Well, and that brings me to my next question with this is one of my favorite questions, and that is tool use with primates and tool use with these creatures. Um, well, I guess I want to start off and ask both of you, what constitutes tool use? Could it be something as simple as picking up a twig to get ants to crawl up on it so you can eat them or can you comment on that a little bit? Uh, Go ahead, John. Well, yeah, yeah. As far as far as my perspective goes, um, you know, definition of of a, of a tool is just you know some some material thing that you've manipulated to use for a, a different purpose than you know what it is was naturally made for, right? So, so that could be a, you know if you're a capuchin monkey, it could be using a rock to smash open a nut or a chimp. You could use a, a, a stick to termite fish or or even just a, a rock to throw or to hit somebody with. I mean, that's that's the definition of a tool. It's kind of a loose definition, but still it requires the ability to, to think ahead and to plan and to understand and conceptualize that here's a bit of material that you can do something with that would aid you in whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. What, um, and John, this, again, this is for you. What is, what would you consider one of the more sophisticated tool uses of chimps and I'm just going to I'm going to throw this out as well there was a um a chimp trainer I saw on YouTube I don't remember who it was but she had actually trained one of the chimps I think it was a chimp to start a fire put marshmallows on a stick and roast them have you have you guys heard of that I've not but I mean it doesn't surprise me I had never heard of that, Tom, but uh, there is a monkey named, uh, and I believe his name's Frank, that used to be down at the uh, South Texas uh, Primate Sanctuary. He smoked cigarettes. Okay. (laughs) Well. (laughs) And he had learned that from his owner. Yep. Oh, really? So he he just picked it up. It wasn't something that the owner specifically. And he learned to smoke and he developed a smoking habit. And he would actually, if he saw somebody smoking, he would beg a cigarette off of him. Oh, interesting. Um, Did he drink beer? There's a story in one of Green's books where there was a guy, and I can't remember if he was a hunter or trapper or what he was, but he left his camp for some reason, had a fire going, and when he came back, he saw these two creatures 
standing next to his fire, you know, like when you do when you're kids, you put a stick in the fire and then you swirl it around. Do you suppose that's um, a behavior they watch people doing and would do something like that? Oh, is that oh. the uh, the the Yowie in uh, Australia they call Mister Firehands? No, that was actually in one of John Green's books, I think, from British Columbia. Well, there's a there is a Yowie uh, story in uh, Australia of one that they call Mister Firehands, and he does that quite frequently. To uh, comes into people's camps and does that. What do you think, John? You think that's a learned behavior by watching people, or do they pick that up on their own? Well, I think it. Well, it could be either. I would. I mean, and it's hard to know for sure. But what I would just suggest is that brains are so big, right? Uh, with the kinds of hands that primates have, they can make and use tools, and so. I could definitely see it being a curiosity thing. You know, what is, what is this thing? Why does it smell? Why does it look like that? Why is it hot? And then using a stick to poke in and see what's going on. So I think it could be learned, but I don't think it has to be learned from watching us. I think they're, they're smart enough to, to, you know, and curious enough to kind of try to figure it out on their own, too. That's an interesting point, John, because... You know, we, we don't we don't really get a chance to observe Bigfoot and their behaviors that much. But the fact that they they probably do things that we aren't aware of that are very intelligent, show an extreme level of intelligence. Now, it'd just be fascinating well, it, to see. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's what I always go back to. Right. We talk about it whenever I'm on the show. I, you know, I, I talk about it. So I won't go on and on, but that's my whole point about the whole, you can't take the primate out of this whole thing. Cause if you're just going to look at them from, you know, if you don't look at them as just monsters, if you look at them as primates, then, then you know, they have a high degree of intelligence. You know that they make and use tools to a certain degree, you know, they communicate to a certain degree and they problem solve and all that. Right. So uh, yeah, what we're not seeing is way more fascinating than we would, than we would ever observe just in the few moments people see them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Forrest, I have a question for you, and this is from a gentleman, in, a guy named Ron, and I don't know if he's Australian, but he wants to know, have, has rock stacking ever been presented as a trait by the Australian Yowie, or is this specific to the uh, Sasquatch in North America only? And I realize it's a kind of a hypothetical question, uh, unless, and by the way, real quick, I just want to say thank you to Annie. Annie was our guest uh, a few episodes back from Australia, from Queensland, and she sent Will and I each a book called The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot. So great resource material and uh, just big thanks to Annie. Well, now, I don't know. I have never heard and um, about Yowie's stacking rocks like uh, they uh, believe that Bigfoot do. Um, I, I would think that uh, they are so similar in their um, patterns of behavior that I would think that they probably would. Um, I mean, they exhibit almost the exact uh, behaviors that uh, Bigfoot do, so I would assume that uh, if the rocks were available for stacking, they probably would. Well, let me ask you this. 
Um, and I'm going to ask Forrest first, and then I'm going to, uh, John, the same same question to you, and that is, um, are there other primates who do things like this, uh, like rock stacking or maybe taking sticks and, you know, arranging them, you know, stacking them up or something like that? Are either one of you, uh, I'm going to start with you, Forrest, uh, have you heard of anything like this? I'm not familiar with any other primates. Um, now I've I've watched a lot of macaque behavior, and I've never seen uh, them do anything like that. Uh, in fact, I've never really seen anything that I would refer to as tool use and and their behavior. But uh, uh, chimps are the only ones that I know of. Uh, they use sticks to batter each other with, and uh, you know sticks for pulling termites out of termite hills and uh, they will throw rocks they 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 they're very proficient at throwing rocks but i've never I, i've never heard of any other primates doing that okay the, the only thing i can think that's of not, that, that doesn't mean yeah, that it only, doesn't exist <laughs> yeah the only thing i can think of that's kind of like that is i know that there are and i I'm not, I can't remember. I should remember. I can't remember if it's chimps or gorillas, but I know there was in one zoo, there was a captive, you know, a, a, a group of captive um, great apes. And what they would do is they would, uh, they would stack rocks. Uh, they would basically position rocks throughout the day. And people would be like, what are they, what are they positioning rocks for? What are they doing? Well, once they had enough stacks of rocks, when the zoo opened, they would throw the rocks at people. Now people wouldn't get hit because of the nets or whatever. But the point was, they were they were taking the rocks, positioning them to do something different with them. So to me, it's 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 kind of a very similar type of behavior. So I wouldn't rule it out. Um, the other kind of tool use I just want to mention it just came to mind, which is really really cool, is in capuchin monkeys. They uh, they rub um, piper leaves on their bodies. This is really interesting. They rub piper leaves on their bodies, but they only do it do it during the um, during the rainy season. It's an antiseptic, right? And so, uh, during that season, lots of bug bites, lots of irritated skin, and so, and they and they share the leaves. They steal the leaves. They hoard the leaves. So, it's pretty. You know, it's just amazing. You just never know. Um, I don't. I wouldn't put a limit on any of it. So the creatures, the, the monkeys, rather have some sort of understanding of medicinal uses how on earth did they figure that out i wonder that's interesting you know there's some it's interesting some of the behaviors you know we look at sasquatch behavior and of course we only get it from witness uh accounts you know those small time periods when they see things but you know throwing rocks you know that seems to be kind of a universal primate uh behavior um and we just had a guy I used to wonder you know we talked about uh, you know, chimps throwing feces, and I think other apes do it too, at people often. Uh, but we had a witness not that long ago, Tom, if you remember where the Sasquatch threw its feces at him. Right? Yes. Of all the things. So there's so there's some behaviors that are very un-ape-like, but some that are, you know, fit right in the mold. Yep, and that's what you'd expect. That's exactly what you'd expect. Um, so, all right. Three months ago, Will, you came up here with a team. And 
we found something that we, you and I have talked about for a couple of years. It was actually something that I discovered probably about a month and a half before you guys came up here. And that is where the bark had been torn off of certain type, a certain type of tree. I think it was just strictly the Doug firs. And it was not, it was, I mean, huge chunks, huge chunks of bark was removed 25, 30 feet up. And it wasn't um, done by by woodpeckers because if a woodpecker did it, it's you know it's going to look different. You're going to have a pile of debris on the ground, which I commented. Look at the big pile of debris that's not there. Um, <clears throat> and we speculated it was for medicinal purposes. I mean, why else would they do that? That's it's more of a comment, I guess. I'm just. <clears throat> I guess I'm going to throw this out to John if um, and then and then Forrest, if you have any information on this. Have you heard of any of the monkeys, uh, the great apes or anything that have torn the bark off the trees and, you know, used it for some sort of medicinal purposes besides the leaves that you talked about? Um, well, I mean, I, I haven't, but that doesn't mean a whole lot that I haven't. Um, I mean, I knew they I know they do. As part of their display behavior, they can tear up tear up our, our, our trees and throw it around and stuff. But as far as medicinally, I I've not heard of it. But again, I may not have heard of it. Doesn't mean much if I haven't heard of it. Well, and I ha I haven't either. But I, I will say this: that I do know I have a friend that lives up in British Columbia, and she told me that the elk and deer uh, oftentimes will <coughs> excuse me. Uh, strip the bark off of, I believe it's aspen trees, um, and that there is some sort of medicinal property in it that uh, they they use by e eating the bark on the the trees. Yeah, no, that. That's <clears> not <throat> primates, yeah. but. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's uh, and again, but it just shows uh, behavior of of some of the animals out there that they somehow have figured out. Um, you know the the medicinal qualities of you know well, whatever native, it is. And Native Americans used a lot of things and still do. You know a lot of the plants out there for various reasons, and I'm sure these guys probably also do that. It also that the primates like the capuchins don't know why, right? They may not. They probably don't know why it's doing what it's doing. But the point is they they can remember and they can, you know, they can think ahead and all that kind of stuff. So either way, it's pretty cool. All right. So here's a question. And again, this will be, and I'll start off with uh, Forrest and then I'll go to John. Um, Danny writes in, he says, this might be a little bit obscure for the show. And Will, you can pipe in too, if you have a thought on this. He says, have we ever heard of a full skeleton uh, deer, elk, cow, etc., that was suspected to have been dispatched by a Bigfoot a skeleton that might be uh, undamaged except for a broken leg. So I think what he's looking for is, are we seeing evidence of dead animals out there that has probably, Bigfoot's the culprit? Well, I can think of three, actually. There was one we got pictures of from Jeremiah of the ladies' property in the Adirondacks, New York, and that was two separate years. There was was a full-grown deer hung 11 feet up in a tree by its head. Um, 
just just the skeletal remains left a little bit of skin uh let me think there was oh and then there's the one in arizona with our current situation yeah. going down there and then the bear that my friend found and took me to where the head was head was crushed yeah and that bear is interesting because uh predators and scavengers you said had not touched it is that right yeah, it was completely intact. I mean, the bones and there was some hair, uh, but it had not been scavenged at all. And it was not a f- recent kill, correct? I don't know. It had been laying there at least a year. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot about the ones you mentioned where, and I've also, well, there was a, state trooper up in the state of washington that had i think you said he found coyotes that had been smashed into trees or something like that that was that was fresh though that was a fresh kill right but what grabs coyotes and smashes their head into a tree well 10 feet (laughs) off the ground i mean that's you know and they were torn apart and eaten yeah um so you know you you have to take a look and say well like Sherlock Holmes you eliminate all other possibilities and what's left um, so anyway I'll just kind of throw that out uh, Forrest do you have any comments or any opinions or thoughts on that well I certainly haven't ever seen any deers hanging in trees uh, I've seen uh, comments where uh, you know, people have described this event and then people say, oh, that was a, a cougar, a mountain lion that did that. Well, first off, that is not mountain lion behavior. They most generally, they feed on the ground and then they will cover their uh, kill, then come back and feed on it later. They don't take it up in trees like leopards do. Uh, and the last time I checked, we don't have leopards in North America. Um, but um, the only thing that I've ever seen was the, that bone field that I told you about. And I, we were, we as a bunch of archaeologists were actually confounded by the the site, and the they were all disarticulated. Um, there wasn't an entire skeleton anywhere, but they were all all disarticulated and laying around. And you know, I I, I did go back and actually talk to the uh, the rancher there to find out if maybe he had uh, you know drugged his cattle back there when they had. Uh, died and he had no idea that that was even on the back of his property so uh, i don't think it was coyotes um and even a mountain lion uh, we don't get them big enough in east texas to uh, drag full-size cows around so um i i refresh my memory on that yeah can you tell us real briefly uh, that story yeah we had uh, were doing an archaeological uh, survey uh, for actually it was for the Conoco lignite mine out there, and uh, we had it was right at the end of the day, and uh, we had just finished uh, doing the survey on this man's property, and we walked to the back corner to finish it, and um, actually one of the other um, guys that was on my crew he actually called me to come over there and he said come look at this because he he had no this guy was from Rhode Island so he was just he was blown away with all these cow bones out there 
And uh, um, I walked over and I said, oh, yeah, you know, my first answer was, you know, having come from a ranching family. Oh, they just, you know, ranchers around here, when they have a cow die of old age or die from something, they just take it and drag it to the back of their property over a hill or something and let the coyotes have it. And so that's not an unusual thing. And, and to be honest with you, that was what I was thinking that we were looking at. And it was actually almost a perfect circle in there, cleared out. And it had thickets all the way around it. And um, the, at no point, uh, there was only one uh, small entryway into that area. And nothing could have been seen back there. And as like I had said before, if something was sitting back there eating, they could have been feeding at their leisure because nobody would have seen them. Nobody or nothing would have seen them. And I merely, when we were leaving, had stopped by the the uh, farmhouse and actually told the guy what we'd found back there. And I said, is that uh, where you take your cattle, you know? And, and he was dumbfounded. He had no earthly idea what I was even talking about. And um, I mean, he's like me. I mean, I don't go to the back of my ranch all the time every day to go check what's back there. have no reason to. And I'm sure he hadn't probably been back there and, no telling when he he actually I'm assuming probably went back there and checked it out after we left because he was really curious after we told him what we found and um, it was just a lot of cow bones uh, all disarticulated and something had been back there eating on them can you uh Forrest can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by I mean about how they were placed you said they were in a circle no the the area was a circle the, it was a cleared okay. out area with a circle. And okay. you know, the, yeah. there was no formation as far as the bones or anything like that. They were just okay. all lying around. But there, you could tell that it was several different individual cows that uh, uh, they were from. It wasn't all from just one or two. And yeah. uh, but yeah. something had been feeding on them because they were all broken apart. They were cracked open. Something had eaten the marrow out of them and everything else. And uh, we were just, wow. we were really kind of standing around all of us. There was five members on my crew at that point in time, and we were just all kind of standing there scratching our heads, you know, like, uh, it was kind of freaky. I mean, I said that, that, yeah. that may sound like a strange word to use, but it was kind of freaky. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And what about the circle that is, was the circle, was it natural or was it made uh, by something? Well, now that's been a lot of years, sir, but uh, I would I, I guess we just assumed, and that is the only word I can use, It was, we just assumed that it was a natural area back there that had been cleared out, and it was surrounded by thickets and uh, brush, and there's a lot of berries and briar bushes in that, that particular area of Texas, and it was thick. You couldn't, uh, around it, you couldn't have walked through that stuff, and it was just all cleared out in there, and... I don't know if it had been cleared because something had been in there all the time, moving around, and that had caused the clearing. I don't know. You know, I don't even recall us having having pondered on that question. You know, we just we were more uh, stupefied by seeing all these bones laying out there. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, multiple individuals, bones of bones of multiple individuals. That would be interesting because I mean, it just that doesn't happen, you know. No, the only way it would have happened is if the farm, and that's what I, why I thought, because my grandfather used to do the same thing. If one of the cows died or one of the sheep died, he just took it over the hill 
on the back of the ranch and then the the coyotes took care of it um you know and i was i had assumed that that's what this man had been doing but that wasn't so those cows and he wasn't losing cows so those cows had to come from somewhere somebody had lost some cows (laughs) yeah that was my next question was did he have any loss of you know his his cattle inventory and it sounds like he didn't no because the the one thing that he did mention to me and i think that i had mentioned that to you before that uh you know when i had approached him about the question about was he dragging his cows back over there and uh, he said no and uh and then when i described to him what we'd seen he said well he wasn't missing any cows so he was kind of like i said completely confused on where all these cow bones would have come from. So, John, I'm going to throw the question at you, sort of. Um, are you at all familiar with any of the primates doing anything where they would, because uh, I think they do, isn't it true that sometimes chimps will attack and kill other monkeys and eat them? And uh, Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they do. Is there any kind of parallel behavior with chimps? Maybe just toss some bones in a corner, you know, somewhere. And uh, I'm just curious if this is a a one-off or. Well, that's why I was. That's why I was asking because there's a there's a if you're having an accumulation of things in one area, and again, I'm just thinking from a forensic standpoint and seeing a lot of things out in the middle of where they shouldn't be. Um, you know, I mean, even, you know, I've even worked, worked lots of, um, lots of cases where we had non, non-human stuff out there, right? You had to sort through the human versus the non-human, but, but even still, it, nothing is like piled together or even really kind of in close proximity because what happens is the, all the different critters and the mechanisms of, of, you know, the, the biodiversity act on the remains and they get spread, they get decomposed, right? So we're not carrying with the toe bones. You know, bigger critters are carrying other things, and raptors taking things away. So, so nothing ends up kind of where it is, you know, kind of all in the same area. Unless, again, uh, unless there's some reasonable expectation of whoever's leaving it there that it's a safe place, right? Like, like, uh, like Boris was talking about with mountain lions. I mean, mountain lions are, you know, scavengers too, and they will come steal your stuff, right? But whatever is leaving, leaving things in a certain area consistently is pretty confident that nobody's going to mess with them. Right. So that's that's why that kind of the whole location of the remains kind of piqued my interest, because I've seen lots of stuff just naturally out in there. And I hardly I don't think I've ever seen more than one individual, uh, a representation of an individual, you know, within a few meters of, you know, uh, of another. Everything's spread out. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And the fact that, you know, it's a safe area. Um, gosh, that that is, you know, you you just try to figure out what else could be. Um, and and I just want to mention, I have somebody that I know. Actually, it was a family member up in the state of Washington. Him and his friend were hiking uh, along a very remote uh, trail next to a, a river up there. I don't remember which river it was. When uh, they're doing this at nighttime because they're fishing, and they ran into a pile of 
elk bones. And he said it, he estimated it was, it was just horrible stench. And he estimated about 200 elk had to be in this pile. It was just immense. Um, and that's the only other time I've heard of anything like this. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah it is. And, um, you know, I told him, I said, you know, you absolutely need to report this to, I don't know if they or not, he, he's, uh, he's out of the country right now. He's, uh, his girlfriend's over in Europe, and I uh, guess where he's at, he's a young man, so <laughs> that's where <laughs> priorities. Um, but, yeah, I told him he, need to, he needed to mention that to the authorities so somebody can investigate it. Um, yeah, if, if no other reason than is that a dumping is that a poaching poacher dump site, right? I mean, no, no other reason than that. I mean, there may be more mysterious reasons, but just on the face of it, that's totally strange. Yeah, and it was in such an area that was so remote. So, um, yeah, no, it's hard hard to say. Um, you know, we have varieties of Bigfoot, and just curious if uh, John, if you have any ideas on. Um, you know, some varieties of Bigfoot that maybe would account for this. Uh, account for the accumulation of things? Yeah, accumulation of bones, exactly. And cracking them open, getting the marrow out and that sort of thing. Well, I, I, I don't think you need to pinpoint a certain variety. I think if we're talking about uh, any kind of higher primate, hominid, hominin, whatever you want to call it these days, any of them would are going to have the capacity, the brain power to, to you know, and, and the ability, the cognitive ability to do that kind of thing. So uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't chalk it up to one kind of version as a po or type compared to another. And I've always been, just because I'm a forensic guy and I deal a lot with human variation. You know, there's a lot of human variation, but it's all one species. So I tend to err on the side of not breaking things up. And I don't think you have to identify a type A, B, C, or D that is that is capable of doing that. I think if the thing's out there, I think any and this I'd love to see what Forrest says, but I think any of them should have all the all the capacity to be able to do that. Well, okay, and another question kind of that sort of ties into that is, you know, when we have all the different uh, variations, I believe we have something along the lines of, you know, well said up the twenty two, you know, you get variation in species, twenty two different variations of Bigfoot what what could be one of the causes um, that would create a different uh, variety for example in the northwest we have the real muscular ones and I think around uh, the midwest and, and down around Texas they're big and muscular but they're not as bulky and so that's a long-winded way of saying um, what causes the? Well, the it's the exact same thing that causes variation in human species, right? So it's the it's the four forces of evolution, right? Mutation, natural selection, gene flow, genetic drift, right? It's it's any time you know so so mutations happen, work or you know or maybe nature doesn't care one way or the other, but 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 traits you know genetic differences accumulate in populations that tend to pop, tend to uh, you know mix their genes. And then you have another population. This is where you get into like genetic drift or, um, well, genetic drift, right? Where you have a smaller population going to a different area and then they're mixing up their certain set of genes. I used to do these, these uh, genetic, uh, these population genetic uh, 
uh, exercises with my class to show how this works. But you can just have a, a pretty small population leave a larger population, and within a few generations, that break-off population will look very different genetically, right? And then you, you add that to a different environment, different food sources, different predators, you know, all kinds of things, and then it just, just stacks up. So it's the exact same, same method as with humans. And so what else, causes that matter? Well, what causes that? I mean, are there like recessive genes or some sort of recessive information that now becomes dominant because it's required, or what, what's the what's the deal there? Oh, that yeah. That, well, whether or not we're talking recessive or dominant is it depends on the trait. But you you absolutely nailed it, right? You absolutely nailed it. So if if I happen to be uh, you know if I happen to like just be a little bit stronger, a little more aggressive, just genetically, uh, than the rest of the group, it's more likely that I will become the dominant male. And if I'm the dominant male, I'm probably going to pass those genes on, right? And the next thing you know, after several generations, you're going to have more of a dominant trait. And this is where you get, and I'd love to hear what Forrest says about this, because she sounds like she's more of an expert than I am on chimps, but this is where you get your, your common chimps versus your bonobo chimps. One is much more aggressive than the other, and that's because the environment's selected for that aggression more aggressively, no pun intended, than with the bonobos, right? So so you nailed it, right? So a, a variation comes up, whether it's a mutation or whether it's a new mix, and then if it's advantageous, it gets pushed. Like, for example, why are, why are Neanderthals bigger? Well, bigger, barrel-chested, shorter limbs did better in a colder environment. And if you're doing better, you're probably going to, you know, procreate, reproduce. Yeah, excellent. And Forrest, just real quick, what are what are your thoughts on the same question? What what maybe kind of well, he, dovetail he, off? He of that. answered. He he gave you an excellent answer because uh, I was just going to say pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, you're going to have variations within uh, a grouping like uh, Bigfoot, just like you have variations within uh, people and certain factors of of uh, physical factors uh, are going to work. For one group in one area, whereas uh, certain other physical uh, factors aren't, and I think it's just like anything. I think what do they say? In three generations, you can breed a uh, breed a, an animal uh, true to form, uh, whatever you're looking for. You know, you breed out the the bad, breed in the good. Of course, that doesn't always work that way, but um, it's uh, selective features uh, that uh, dominate that are. Uh, that work well in a certain uh, area. I did a paper on the, the Marapuche Indians of the Altiplano region of the Andes, and surprisingly enough, they exhibit a lot of the same features that uh, uh, Neanderthals do with the big barrel chests, and uh, which works real well in uh, uh, cold climates and higher altitudes. And uh, so you can have some features that, uh, that work well in mountainous regions uh, versus uh, aren't going to work so well in tropical regions. And um, so, and then there's going to be a cross, a, a crossing of that and a hybridization between groups and, you know, and hybrids, uh, some become, uh, you know, uh, where the, that they they can breed true and uh, true to form, whereas others are not, and those are going to die. The ones that don't are going to die off. Um, now you were talking about the chimpanzees, uh, the common uh, chimp, the common pan. He, <clears throat> those are very aggressive aggressive animals, and um, 
they are even right now having problems in Africa with uh, chimpanzees ganging up. Two groups actually got together and were actually attacking gorillas. And they had never, researchers had never seen this type of behavior before. Um, I don't know why. Um, I mean, maybe it's something that has gone on in the past. We don't know. But this was actually the first time researchers had ever seen them do anything like that. Your bonobos, um, gosh, I hate to say this on air, but the bonobos solve all their problems by sex. Um, they are a very sexual, they're a smaller chimpanzees, and usually the chimpanzees you see on television and such as that and in um, circuses, they're bonobos because they're a gentler, they're much more docile creature. They're smaller in stature as well. And, um, but as a, a group in the wild, they solve every, if there's a, a disagreement, the next thing, it's like a mass orgy with everybody. And then everybody's happy and everybody goes on about their business again. So as crazy as that sounds, that's how that works for them. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think I, and that's, that's exactly, that's exactly um, what my understanding is. And I think that in, it's the case that with the pan troglodyte, right, with the, with the common chimp, they traditionally live in areas that are much more susceptible to habitat loss and predation from exactly. humans, bushmeat markets, things like that. But, but There's a lot of um, stress bonobos, involved in their lives. Right, right, exactly, right? And so if you happen to be more aggressive, if you happen to be bigger, if you happen to be faster, whatever, you're probably going to do better and pass on your genes to that environment, whereas you know, bonobos are also a lot more maternal than, you know, female kind of oriented uh, than, than the others. And there's just less pressure, right? So it's like, you know, I do chill out. We're just kind of, you know, sit here and feel good, right? Kind of a thing. In fact, even though they're just a few fractions of a percentage different genetically, um, when you have captive primates, like in, in, um, in um, uh, uh, sanctuaries, when you get captive chimps, they have to do genetic testing to make sure they're not mixing bonobos and, and, and commons because the commons will rip the bonobos apart and bonobos are like, what, what's your problem? You know? So very, very different. And and that's, that's because of genetic and behavioral selection. Oh, that's interesting. I had no idea. They, so they look enough alike that you have to test them to make sure that you're not, uh, mixing them up, is that right? Well, there's some differences. I mean, uh, but bonobos have kind of furrier, more hairy kind of cheek and darker, darker uh, hair, but still not enough that you'd want to, they're not different enough that you'd want to chance it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, listen, guys, I think we're running short on time. I want to thank John and I want to thank Forrest, both of you for coming on the show. This was fascinating. We're going to have you guys back if uh, if you're willing. It'd be great. Oh yeah, yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, it's great to meet Forrest. You sound like Forrest. You sound like you have a fantastic uh, history. I'd love to talk more to you about it. Yeah, well maybe we talk sometime. Yep, sounds good. All right, we really appreciate you both taking the time to join us today. You bet. Enjoyed it as usual, Will. All right. Thank you so much. And everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, 
Horn Lake, Vancouver Island, December 1904. The Victoria Daily Colonist, December 4, 1904, carried a news story concerning a wild man, part of which ran as follows. A.R. Crump, J. Kincaid, T. Hutchins, and W. Buss, all sober-minded settlers of Qualicum, are the new witnesses, and there is not the slightest deviation or variation in detail in the stories they tell with an earnestness which defies ridicule. They were hunting out in the vicinity of Horn Lake, which lies midway between Great Central Lake and Comox Lake, in an uninhabited and little explored section of the interior of Vancouver Island, when they came upon the uncouth being whom they describe as a living, breathing, and intensely interesting modern Mowgli. The wild man was apparently young, with long matted hair and a beard, and covered with a profusion of hair all over his body. He ran like a deer through the seemingly impenetrable tangle of undergrowth, and pursuit was utterly impossible. Tom, what do we have for questions? All right. Question number one today is from a gentleman named Tal. And, Will, I think this is one hopefully you've got the answer for. Uh, He says, in the most recent episode of Creek Devil, there were two accounts of a Sasquatch where they spoke a Douglas dialect. One was Seraphine Long, who was abducted and lived with him for a year. Another was of a man who shot a white boy hidden in a tree. Do we have any information on what the Douglas dialect belongs to? Uh, I have no idea, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't either. Uh, good question, but uh, yeah, apologize. We don't uh, we don't have a specific answer on that. I'm sure we, we have people we can ask, but... Yes, yeah. Um, okay, so Robert wants to know and this is a question that, you know, kind of comes up from time to time in old, little different forms. Do the four creatures, do the type, well, he wants to know, do the type four creatures have a mid-tarsal break? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really know. Um, I've got I've got some really good pictures of footprints, but um, it's not, you know, something I, you know, particularly focus on, so... I'd have to go back and look at those pictures. Yeah, and you know, no, not not trying to be flippant or anything, but we don't have one of the creatures here where we can say, "Hey, would you sit up here and let me take a look at your foot for a second? Yeah, the the pictures, the tracks that I have are from the right region. Whether they're you know from the type fours or not, we don't know because the creatures weren't seen. They were found by moose hunters, uh, and they took pictures and sent me the pictures. You know, it's a good question, though, because, well, you and I have talked about the Type 4s as very possibly being something distinct from Bigfoot, from Sasquatch. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, again, when we had that conversation with uh, John and uh, Forrest uh, talking about the uh, Minnesota Iceman, uh that was again that was a very very distinct possibility that it's it's something different yeah i I mean like i said i I don't know exactly how important the mid-tarsal break stuff is anyway but um 
it's not not something we have the information on at least like i said on that particular type um i'll review the footprint pictures maybe we can revisit that yeah absolutely okay so this this person here wants to know <clears throat> uh, and this is talking about the creatures mimicking they'll, they'll mimic all sorts of sounds but mm -hmm. quite often they'll mimic other animals and what have we ever heard of these things mimicking a cow elk you know i think um in gerald's case you remember where he got surrounded by the five creatures it's exactly what came to mind and huh? and he was he was using his uh his elk call now i can't remember if he said that they responded or not though he was, yeah, I'm, I'll am i have to, you know, I can ping him and ask him yeah. if that's the case. He, because um, he definitely got owl sounds. Pound was owl. it during that incident? Yes. It's yeah, been it was. a while, so I can't remember. Okay. And I think that was the one where, uh, I think that was his transformation period going from a non-believer to a firm believer. <laughs> it's certainly possible they would do that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, now here's the other question. Um, whistling, we've heard them. I mean, that I think you've even mentioned that that's one of the more common sounds they make that's, is a that's very what, sharp that's whistle. That's what Native Americans say that they do. That's that's one of the common things when you when you look at their uh, the wood carvings and their masks, the ceremonial masks. Um, they're often depicted with the pursed lips whistling yeah now have you heard them whistle because i know you've heard a lot of different sounds from these things i have up on the olympic peninsula on the eastern side okay <clears throat> um the other question this gentleman wants to know is do they is there any evidence that the creatures will stalk people we get a lot of, well, okay, I guess it goes back to, I mean, we've heard it from time again, time and again from witnesses talk about, you know, being followed, you know, where they hear it, they'll be paced on one side or both sides and sometimes from the rear also, that's stalking. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I've experienced that twice. No, three times, because with the five of us about three months ago, um, and, and I don't know if you call that stalking, but they were definitely there. And oh no, I would. I mean, and and definitely, you know, there's plenty of old accounts, you know, that have been written where people were stalked by the creatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was an account of I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but she uh, she was a non-believer. She just you know the silliness of you know. It's, she always thought it was the jackalope of the Pacific Northwest mm -hmm. until she was stalked by one for three days in Montana. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This person has a question. He says, gentlemen, I have a question about Sasquatch appearance, particularly the less seen white and light gray colored creatures. And a few years ago, Will, you hinted that, the, that Renee DeHinden, the late Renee DeHinden, discuss with you some unique control measures associated with these lighter shaded creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
actually, no, that's a secret I'm keeping. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Okay. There, there, yeah. There's too much information sometimes out there. And some of the things that I, I keep, you know, I kind of hold close are things I still use as control measures, you know, when I'm trying to ascertain how true a story is or not. And, um, and that's one of them that I like to keep, you know, because, uh, there's so little anymore to use to tell if a story is actually real or not. Yeah. And I think it's important to do that, to have some, hold on some factual information. And then when you hear it, it's, you know, that it's a good likelihood yeah. they didn't pick it up somewhere else. It's not a piece of information that's really crucial for people out there to know. You know, it, but it's just something that that he told me that I use, and uh, it's just a tool. You know, it's not something that's you know earth-shaking information. Yeah, very good. Okay, and <clears throat> this person wants to know about the creatures in Texas. So this is good. This dovetails with our recent conversations. Uh, are they? Is there something different? Uh, he's heard us talk about or comment that the, the Bigfoot in Texas is a very different uh, disposition in both psychologically and the physiology than the the other ones. Well, what I was told is is the big thicket area in East Texas, kind of that general region, particular region's behavior. Um, I'm trying to think how it was worded to put it out correctly. They, they seem to be a little, um, I, I mean, other regions around the country, you know, they're, they're somewhat predictable in their behaviors. Uh, but that, it seems to be that that particular area is different. Now, whether it's, you know, something psychological, um, I mean, who knows? Um, maybe there's a little too much inbreeding going on there and, and their their psychology is just it's off from all the rest of them. That's what I was told. And they're very aggressive. Very aggressive, yeah. Well. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And um, do you think that could potentially make them a a different subspecies of Bigfoot? In other words, you got the type 1, 2, 3. No, I don't, I don't think that's got anything to do with it. I mean, the other variations, um, you know, like we talked with John and, and Forrest when they were talking about, you know, that, that they, they felt they were, you know, one species. There's actually two major groupings, I was told. but and, and we have physical differences, you know, between the two main groupings. But uh, these things are, you know, they're, they're probably the type twos like that are in the, in the South primarily. It's just it's how their behavioral model is different than the rest of them. And they seem, and they're isolated from all the other ones. Oh, okay. Well, and that actually, I, I have a kind of a question on the, you know, well, I understand there's uh, the two basic types, and then you got variation within the species. Do you have any information, or can you comment a little bit on the some of the attributes or the traits of the different twenty-two groups? You don't have to go through all of them, but just maybe. What would make one well, I a little bit? I haven't really been given that information except, and I've mentioned this before, it's things like, 
because the gene pools aren't mixing in some of these regions. In other words, like in the areas on the west coast here, we have predominantly what's like what you see in the Patterson film, these, you know, these very heavily built muscular creatures, you know, live in mountainous terrain. And they're better adapted for that kind of terrain with that build. You get east of the Cascade Mountains, and you have more open and flat ground, and you have the same same type of creature. It's just a different variation. They're they're thinner and more um, more adapted for open ground running. So they're th they're leaner and and they're just a different build than the ones in the mountains. That's just different adaptations. You know, they've the attributes that fit that terrain. And again, that would kind of go back to our discussion with John and Forrest about um, recessive genes right. becoming more dominant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, depending it's, on circumstances. Whatever's better suited for that environment. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Danny wants to know, he's listening to a Creek Yellow show where there's a discussion of dogs, cats, and raccoons that were being taken by Bigfoot, but the only uh, remaining piece was just the tails. And the first time anything would took place, he was talking about uh, there were some tracks in his neighbors who had a sighting two weeks prior. Uh, he had walked into the woods and <clears throat> found a chipmunk tail very recently severed. Um, with no other trace of the, the chipmunk, no bones or anything else. Mm -hmm. So have we heard of anything like that? Or have we had any personal experience like that? I think that's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. I mean, I, I suppose if they are doing that, then, then that's something you would expect. And what nutrition is in the tail, right? I mean, yeah, not a whole lot, I wouldn't think. <laughs> right? So... Might be part um, I discard too. <laughs> right, and just where the tail starts, I don't think I'd work on that either. So, <laughs> just, just saying, folks. What, what are you getting at, Tom? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and actually, I don't eat chipmunks, so I don't. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> but you know, this kind of goes down to you're working on a book. Uh, I think it's like four or five hundred q a questions mm -hmm. but i want to jump in real quick and ask if uh on the caloric intake because that's something i've always been really curious about if uh if there's sufficient calories in the deer and elk and whatever population oh yeah for yeah. to sustain a large population of these things well, and this is rhetorical. I, I think I think I saw. I can't remember. There was an article I, I saw recently where they talked about nationally. There's something like 30 million deer, you know, in the pop, the deer population, deer alone. So yeah, I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there for these things to eat. And it's not just and maybe deer. the occasional chip. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, minus the tail. But there's, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, when you look at it, there's lots and lots of stuff out there, you know, for creatures like that to eat. And, and it's not just, I guess the other question is, they're not just meat eaters, but they eat, um, everything. Do, they eat plants as well. 
the thing about eating meat, and and I wish I could remember. I think I may. I don't know if I sent you the video link or not, but there was a video I saw where there was a guy, and and I think he was in England, but he was doing a comparison of how much energy you would derive a vegetarian diet versus, uh, and it was like a huge amount which you would need in, in a single day. And and he demonstrated it by showing you know a pile of this stuff, and then there was. Um, he put in an equal amount of meat protein and it was a really small amount that you would get the same uh, you would derive the same amount of energy from and so he said basically it was you know uh, it was more economical for a species to eat meat as opposed to you know all of this vegetable material what he was getting around to especially was um creatures with big brains and predators now typically have larger brains than the prey animals the meat you know drives that larger brain okay interesting but the sasquatch well, supplements its diet with all kinds of things i mean they eat they probably eat all kinds of things that we can't eat you know including including garbage so Right. Well, you had that one encounter with... Uh, you had the bag. <laughs> yeah, the bag. But, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> Just, lots of vegetation that they can supplement, you know, that they hunt, and they can also supplement their diet with all sorts of things. Okay. Very good. By the way, coincidentally, uh, just as we were talking, uh, Gerald texted me on on a uh, something totally different. I asked him, I said, hey, buddy, did, uh, did they mimic elk sounds at, at, during your encounter and he said they did not it made other noises you know like i think it was owls but okay. no, no elk but he he agrees with this he says uh there's no reason they can't so what do we have for the next question okay so next question is what and this is uh, kind of a speculative one like like a lot of them but uh will what do you think the bigfoot population is for northern California, Oregon, and Washington. Oh, boy. You know, I don't even have the remotest idea. There's no kind of information that would even, you know, point us in a direction like that just because, you know, number I guess number one, there's no real control measures, you know, to count heads because they move around so much. But also, even if we had every report coming in constantly from people, I, I don't think that would still give us an accurate number. No, absolutely. Because how do you know which one's which, right? Exactly. I mean, unless you had, you know, all the footprint information. And even then, if you've got two groups, you can have similar, you know, foot sizes and things. So, I mean, it, it would be very laborious to collect all that information, you know, to get some kind of a figure. But yeah, I, I don't really have any idea. And here in Oregon, we, um, well, Oregon and Washington and Northern California, you don't really have a whole lot of um terrain that's conducive to getting a a really nice footprint where you could identify it what you get is a lot of forest stuff yeah especially in the western parts of both those states washington and oregon i mean it's just you know it's the brush is thick it's wet you know i will say this uh department of fish and wildlife here in oregon estimates that there's somewhere in the neighborhood uh, 35,000 black bear, you know, you see them, but it, you'd never guess just by the numbers of sightings that there's 
that large of a uh, population of black bear. And, and also, I read the other day that, I don't know if it's just Western Canada or Canada in general, has somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,500 to 4,000, <clears throat> excuse me, mountain lions. And Oregon alone has 6,000 mountain lions is the estimated uh, population. I have seen, and I got to tell you, the mountain lions, in my opinion, are the yetis of the cat world because I have seen their scat. I've seen mm -hmm. their footprints. I never see those things in the wild. The only time I ever saw one out of all the years I've been out in the forest, you know, in the northwestern part of the country, one time, and that was spotlighting at night. But, you know, uh, getting back to the question, Grover Krantz, I remember, <laughs> he said one time he thought the population in, that, in the nation was like 10,000 of them. And I think there has to be many more than that. I mean, I, I was going to say, that sounds pretty low. That's a pretty small like, number, yeah. Um, and I don't recall how we well, come up with that number, but it's it's just not very accurate, I don't think. Well, and you've talked about uh, one of the Mr. Blacks that you talked to said that in the 50s, there was about 50,000, but when the logging took off, it that number went up to, what, six figures? Well, it wasn't didn't have anything to do with logging. What he told me was, in the 50s, the estimate was around 50,000. And currently, uh, now we don't know if it's 100,000 or 900,000, but the current estimate was around in six figures. Now, I said logging was probably what made the big effect because you know, we've talked about that when you when you log an area off, look what happens to it afterwards. Like when we went up your area a few months ago, that area had been burned the previous year, and it was just lush, you know, with leafy plants, and and that's you know that kind of food availability makes the the populations that eat that material explode, which is what's happened. We get a proliferation of deer, and then the predators' uh, population corresponds to that. Well, that's exactly right. Um, there, I just read a news, actually it was a national news article on the uh, wildlife population in Oregon post those big forest fires. Mm -hmm. And the leafy stuff is all over the place and just sort of underscore it. There, I guess a forest service or, or probably more likely fish and wildlife is putting cams out all over the place. And here you got a bobcat looking right you know just doing a selfie right in <laughs> yeah into this trail cam yeah so but i mean they're part of yeah so when they they logged areas that you just get a prol proliferation of wildlife it, it's everybody i remember you know in the 70s and 80s people were screaming oh no you're you're destroying their habitat you're going to kill all the wildlife and the opposite happened really it did on uh, the 70s and 80s uh deer hunting was and still, there's some areas, I mean, I don't deer hunt anymore, it's been years, but there was, people would go out to these way, way, way miles away into the wilderness, and I had a section, an area that I would go to that was BLM land, that was just basically, you know, they would log it, and then they'd put the reprod in, and it was just packed with deer, mm -hmm. tons of, uh, packed with everything, I mean, every I eat everything from porcupines to black bear, deer, elk, you know, the whole the whole gamut oh yeah yeah so um and, and you know i'll 
for me, I think that's encouraging because when the fires come through, and especially when it burns the old growth forest, it's uh, you know it's pretty discouraging. But it's part of nature, even though most of these fires today are, I think, over 80% of them are human caused. Uh, but it's still good to know that there's a rebound, there's a rebirth afterwards. Oh yeah. And our topic is uh, no different than the rest of the wild kingdom and you know when the food supply abounds i think their population abounds well and the evidence of that is we're seeing in the last couple of years a, a ton of reports of juveniles being seen yes good point so that's to me that's uh, evidence of it well the area that we were at about three four months ago uh, that was exactly remember there's that little tiny footprint yeah about five right. or six inches mm -hmm. long and then a year before that, uh, myself and two other guys saw one that was about six, six and a half feet tall and very, it was muscular, but it wasn't bulky. It's it was another it was juvenile. All black. Mm -hmm. Another juvenile, yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, the population of these things is growing. Um, so, this person wants to know what is the cause? Why do you have. Uh, coloration variations in all the different creatures. Well, That's kind of an open-ended question. Yeah, I, I suspect it's it's got to have to do with you know just variation in the species. Same with with people, you get different hair color, different shades, stuff like that. It's just variation. I don't think there's any particular. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the cause. You know, I don't think it's any probably an external cause. It's just whatever you know, whatever combination of genes you know, produces that individual, I, I would suppose. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense. Uh, I remember there was a time when I used to think, this is, you know, like when I was a kid, I used to think that the Yetis were all white. Uh, I think that <laughs> I think that was more to, to do with watching uh, the Christmas cartoons than anything else. Yeah, I, I think that used to be kind of the, the general thought, but it's not, they're not really any different than what we've got here. No. Um, and they also don't well, live in the you, snow fields over there. They live below the snow line in the heavy forests. Which, hello, where's the food? <laughs> yeah, the right, forest. exactly. Well, and now, you know somebody over there. I, I do, who yeah. Has told, and he told you that the, the Indian Special Forces, and these are some tough guys, they take... Uh, they take it very seriously if they're in the if they're in the neighborhood where these things are. Oh yeah, they won't go out there. He said they also they also handle um, you know the tiger was on the endangered species list. I can't remember which which version of the tiger, but in that part of India, but they made a they made a big comeback, and it's largely due to these soldiers that go out and he said they they don't mess around with poachers or anybody they think is a poacher. They just kill them. <laughs> but well, uh, that's <laughs> but, but the tigers are making a big comeback because of these folks and um but when the yetis in the area they won't even go in there they're they're afraid of them too yeah and they had a special kind of bayonet or something uh, some kind of a weapon i don't i don't know what kind of what the weapon is i haven't been able to find i was looking for pictures yeah. of it but it's I, I can't find it so it's not even worth mentioning at this point <laughs> yeah but I just thought it's fascinating that uh, their special forces are very well aware of these creatures, and they go out of their way to avoid them. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Um, okay, this other person wants to know, and so we're getting a lot of really good questions on the physiology of the creatures. And I can't remember the term, but, you know, humans have, we have whites in our eyes. Mm-hmm. But these creatures, uh, they, he wants to know if they have it. And if not, what kind of eyes do they have? And I toss that one to you. I think John talked about this once before. It's not going to be a huge amount different than probably gorillas and chimps. Right. So they're going to have brown eyes. Yeah. Predominantly. Right. With, you know, a black pupil, no, no whites of the eyes. Probably not, yeah. And so I'm just going to kind of go back to the, uh, the sighting that you had. Uh, I know you focused on the size of the creatures and its foot. You saw its foot. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get a chance to look at his uh, face at all or the eyes, or did you get any kind of an impression? I did, but it was, it was getting dark. So, I mean, I, well, I could see the creature. You know, fine details weren't great, and I certainly wasn't yeah. focusing. I mean, I could and see. And you were probably a bit preoccupied at the it, time. It had big eyes. They were, they were wide apart. I, I could see the general shape of the head. You know, I could see that it was it was obviously staring at me very intently. But could I tell if it had whites of eyes? No. And I think you had mentioned it. You could see in the expression on its face, or you just sensed that it wasn't pleased with you being there. I'm not sure if it was an expression so much. Maybe it was just the, I guess the word would be attitude. It's posture, things like that. I just got the impression that it was not happy. And I think it was mutual, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the question about eyes, I suppose, I, I don't know. I mean, my impression was it may have had a lighter area around the pupils, or not pupil, but I, I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, your mind goes through a lot of stuff in a situation like that, so putting things there that really weren't there, it's possible, sure. Well, uh, now i got to go back to uh, one sentence in our very first uh, Bigfoot in History episode where, you know, the miners were grilling the guy, did you see this, did it have this, did it have claws, and he finally sarcastically responded, I didn't stay there and study the brute. Right. <laughs> he was, you know, more interested in leaving. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was my situation. It's like my mind is doing all kinds of mental gymnastics trying to figure out what the hell situation I was in and trying to figure out how to get out of it quickly. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not making notes at the at the moment. You're thinking about your skin, right? <laughs> well, you know, and here's the question I kind of have. I just now thought of this. You go running back in the house, and it wasn't that far from the back porch, right? Yeah, probably what, twenty yards. Um, a little bit more, but yeah, it was. I mean, so let me ask you this: You're inside the house. You've just run away from two of these things. Are you kind of going? Are they still out there? Was that no, going through your mind? I didn't, didn't, Crap, I'm in the house. Didn't consider it. <laughs> I was. Oh, okay. I was more. I was more in the moment, thinking, you know, I need to. Get, I need to get a hold of John. I need to let him know what's going on. Let's figure out what what their next step is. You know, I, I'm not. I wasn't thinking. Oh, is it still outside and all that? I. It didn't. That didn't even come to mind. At least not that I remember. Yeah. What about afterwards, next day or other times when you'd go out? And are you is your head on a little bit of a swivel at that point? You're kind of like, hey, I, I was. I wondered. Where are they? I wondered once in a while. Sure. Yeah. 
And I'm assuming, did you ever go back to that same spot and look around? And... No. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, after after me and the guys went out there and did our search and stuff, I I don't I don't recall. I don't think I went out in those woods anymore. Okay. It, yeah. Interesting. Um. Okay. So this is a question, and I don't know if somebody listened to a previous show or 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 anyway. Um, talking about their diet, gorillas eat a lot of vegetation, they eat a lot of leaves. Mm-hmm. Do these things, um, would it be possible to see one if you're walking through the forest and stumble across one sitting in maybe a, a patch of, uh, rhododendrons or vine maples and just, you know, snarfing on the leaves? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're going to stumble on one doing anything. I really don't. Unless, like we talked in the previous segment, John and Forrest, it would have to be a, a, a rare situation where the conditions have to be just right, where it wouldn't be able to hear you and or see you, and then all of a sudden, you know. But I don't, I don't think often they would put themselves in a position like that. Um, I, th- you know, that's, it just occurred to me. I, th- yeah, because for the most part when most people get to wherever they're going in the forest they get out of their vehicle the moment number one the vehicle makes plenty of noise usually it's on a gravel road Mm -hmm. and you slam the door or you close the door of the car or the truck and if you're out in the woods and you can hear that a long ways away and every animal within a very wide radius just took note of that here's the thought too i got this during our investigation of Yakult, Washington. One of the times, and like I've mentioned many times, there was stuff that happened there all the time. There was so many things. One time I went out in one of the pastures and there was, uh, there were a bunch of, a patch of these ferns. And they're the ones that look like mini trees. You know, they got the thick stalk. And there was a about a 30 foot section across, 30 feet across. I think I measured it. Where all of these had been pulled up and they're pretty hard to pull out of the ground, that particular kind of fern. Oh, yeah. And they were, like, bundled. And I had to think, well, were they taking these and prepping them to take them somewhere? And they just didn't. They left them for whatever reason. So it it makes me think, well, okay, if they're going to eat something, maybe they collect it up and take it somewhere to a more safe, what they feel is a safe position where they can observe, uh, like the place when I met with Hugh Brown, the guy that was charged, had the, had the, mm-hmm. the mock charge. And when I searched the area, I found this kind of a knoll, uh, this little hilltop. And, um, and it was very secluded. And it was a place where you could see, you know, all directions all the way around. I mean, if you were going to be in a place to eat or do whatever, and you wanted to have a good view all around you, be somewhat protected because you're on high ground that would have been the perfect place to do it and we found like five or six of these or four or five whatever it was it was between four and six of these places and there was piles of bones like like a group of these things had sat there and eaten a meal together it was really kind of a weird situation but uh that, that sort of oh i didn't know that was the spot i was going to ask you about oh, yeah, that at one point yeah. where... okay <clears throat> So, so it makes me think they. Makes so it makes me think they take their food someplace where 
and other animals do that too they don't just eat stuff where they're sitting there they go where they're going to you know be in a safe place to what they where they feel is safe to eat right right so what were these bundles and when you say bundles you mean it it because we have sword ferns we have a creek and sword ferns in our backyard Yeah, these weren't sword ferns they were the other kind the other ones okay it doesn't matter. You're not pulling them out of the ground. No, um, but these things... If they're six inches tall, you're not pulling them out of the was, ground. There was a bundle. I, actually, I, I think a bunch of them must have been taken. Maybe they made, had more than one bundle because it was, like I said, the place was about 30 feet across, and there were a lot of these ferns there, so they were pulled out this in this kind of a circular area that all these ferns were pulled out. And the bundle, if you were to you know, lay them on the ground and make a bundle out of them, there was maybe you know it was maybe two feet across this bundle so it wasn't wasn't all the ferns from that spot but i had to wonder where they they must have been prepping these things to take them somewhere and they and they simply hadn't taken that bundle well and the other question is how fresh were they I they, mean, they, were, they were fresh they were fresh then so you they may have just pulled them up and you may have walked along and they may have just stepped into the tree line well, I think Watch I think it was you. the night before because we we wouldn't go out there at night. Uh, we but we'd go out in the daytime and they were always gone. They were always out of the area. But it made me think. But to go back to that question, um, I, I think I think they take their food. You you wouldn't just stumble on them eating like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Well, and the area that <clears throat> the five of five of us were at, you know, a few months ago. Um, I didn't get a chance, <clears throat> excuse me, losing my voice. I didn't get a chance to take you guys to this one area, uh, where a friend of mine and I had gone in, but that's where we, I, but I sent you the pictures, you know, earlier that year where they had just gone and pulled probably a dozen or a dozen and a half little, um, Douglas fir trees out of the ground. And just left them there, roots and all. Yeah, those were little and ones. We found we found the ones in Yakult that were, oh, they were between three and five feet tall. They were pulling up both a Doug fir and alders. Yeah, and good luck with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, the ones that we found, um, you would never be able to pull. I mean, they were 18 inches, uh, maybe 20 inches, 24. You know, they're, they're just little baby saplings. Mm-hmm. Good luck pulling those out of the ground with roots. And, and the roots weren't broken. They were just pulled out of the ground like a weed. And no idea why. No, no, no idea why. They didn't eat them. Um, Same with the ones you know, we maybe found. They just, there was nothing done to them. They were just yanked out of the ground. Maybe they're having fun, or maybe they wanted to eliminate the trees you know not have well you know they wanted to out of the ones we found it was along a trail and it was like they walked along with and both hands on each side just would pull one up and drop it and and as they walk along they just pull them up and drop them just kind of yeah <laughs> like kids yeah exactly yeah wow and that just well it, it speaks to their strength but so do those uh the cedar trees that we saw that were Right, broken right. yeah um okay so the other question is this has to do with so we're familiar with the northwest 
uh, Bigfoot. But the ones that are, for example, in the east or the southeast, where the forests are predominantly deciduous, uh, what do we know about, you know, their their habitat and, uh, you know, would it would it be different? Because it is a little different. Uh, you know, it's the leaner ones I think that live there. Well, you get different again, different variations based on, you know, what what they're adapted to. So. Um, and I don't have a great deal of information on the ones in that part of the country. Right. But there's a lot of hiding places. I mean, you, you take a look oh, at sure. some of the areas. Uh, there's some pretty extensive forested areas with lots of creeks. And, you know, and these things are very good at very adept at uh, concealing themselves. Okay. And I got one more question here. And... This is from uh, uh, Mary, and she wants to know what what is the average family size of a bigfoot of a group of bigfoot? Well, the groups seem to range between four and six individuals for an average group, and that can that can be different. You know, that's not set in stone because um, you know in in the Clark and Skamini counties area of Southern Washington, we had had one group of four, the one that was at Yakult, um, an adjacent group had three, and then there was one farther east, and I can't remember how many individuals were in that one. I think that was a little bit larger group, but um, so there there are some variants, but four to six is a pretty good average. Okay, and then she, follow up. Uh, looks like she also wanted to know at what age do the juveniles have to leave the group and how do they leave? How are they pushed out or do they just voluntarily leave? No one knows. Um, and nobody knows if they do leave. You know, there's, I don't, I don't know if there's any reason for them to leave. Um, you know, it's, it's a question I think we need to ask our anthropologist um, doing with comparative anthropology, you know, chimps and gorillas and, and orangutans, but, um, and, and they're not going to be exactly that either because they're not, not those creatures. I mean, we see some similar behaviors, but then there's other behaviors that are completely different. So, um, until we had, have some kind of information, it's a total unknown question. Yeah, and you know, I I gotta say, I always find it really interesting, the similarities, of, you know, the traits that they do have that seem to be shared with other great apes, um, because they we know that they're so different. They're such a different creature, and yet there's these few little traits mm -hmm. that they share with these other guys, right. and I just always find that kind of interesting. I thought it was interesting, you know, the groups I mentioned, the, the three individuals, there were three males, and I saw, I saw one of them, the big gray one, and I talked to people who saw the same one, and I also had witnesses that saw one of the other ones of that group. The third one, I'm not sure, um, I can't remember, there was, I had witnesses that saw that one too, but I don't remember the particulars about it, but the, um, what I was getting around to was the big gray one. Apparently, uh, it's one of the individuals was its offspring. Now it was a dark brown color, but 
a work crew up there, a road crew, saw this thing, and and the description made it, it, it was almost a carbon copy of the big gray one, except the coloration was different. Um, size and, and build and everything was just like the big gray one, so, and that one actually challenged the road crew. Uh, they had a had a dozer and, and a group of men working up there. You know, they, they were fixing, fixing roads up in that area. I guess there was a new logging project that was going to start off in that region, and so they were, you know, prepping the roads. And this thing was standing there watching the guys in the midday, watching them work. And apparently they all saw it, and then the dozer operator blasted the horn, and the thing screamed back, you know, way louder than the dozer or horn. So, uh, you know, that was the sighting. But, uh, wow. Yeah. It was just interesting that the two individuals looked so much alike, you know, that I, I, I was guessing that that was probably, you know, the big gray one's offspring. And, <laughs> and it wasn't phased by the dozer horn. Not at it's all. like, not at all. What did the crew do? Did they finally say, "All right, well, we'll back off for now"? No, or what, I think what was I there? think the creature left. You know, after it had its say, and <laughs> well, <laughs> still, you know, it'd be one of those situations where I might be operating the dozer, or if I'm one of the crew uh, doing whatever it is on the ground, yeah, I'm going to be very, very uh, cognizant of my environment. My situational awareness <laughs> is going to be kicked up a few notches. There were there were plenty of incidents in that region, you know, like that where just weird things would happen. And now this was what Northern California? No, no, Southern Washington. Just Southern just Washington. just east of Yakult. And what was the time frame? Uh, would have been the late eighties. Okay. Wow. Well, that's an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there, I, you know, I, I forget a lot of those things until we're talking about something and then something will jog my memory. And, oh, yeah, here's this story. Well, it makes me, it sort of reminds me, we have a an account of, a, I believe it was a logger who was driving his log truck and one of these things came out and threw a uh Oh, if it's a tree or a, a, a small tree, yeah, log, small log, tree yeah. into his truck. Well, it went pole vaulting and down the road at his truck. The tree did. Yeah, yeah, it threw it. Oh, it threw it pole vaulting over and over down the road. Wow. And my understanding was the guy, when he got back to camp, that was it. See ya. <laughs> yeah, the guy quit. Wow. Well, that's what an interesting story. If that's it for questions, we can uh, we'll wrap this segment up. Well, that's it for now. And again, I want to real quick. I want to thank everybody for all your great questions. You keep the topic alive. You uh, you get to, you get your questions answered. And uh, so, if you have any further questions or encounters, shoot us an email: questions at creekdevil.com absolutely and uh and for those you know maybe you don't know yet we have a midweek show now we air on wednesdays so check that out and uh so that's it for this segment stay tuned for segment number three 
Bigfoot History, Bishop's Cove, March 1907. The Vancouver Daily Province, March 8, 1907, carries the following story. A monkey-like wild man who appears on the beach at night, who howls in an unearthly fashion between intervals of exertion and clam digging, has been the cause of depopulating an Indian village, according to reports by the officers of the steamer Capilano, which reached port last night from the north. The Capilano, on her trip north, put into Bishop's Cove, where there is a small Indian settlement. As soon as the steamer appeared in sight, the inhabitants put off from the shore in canoes and clambered on board the Capilano in a state of terror over what they called a monkey covered with long hair, standing about five feet high, which came out on the beach at night to dig clams and howl. The Indians say they had tried to shoot it, but failed, which added to their superstitious fears. The officers of the vessel heard some animals howling along the shore at night, but are not prepared to swear that it was the voice of the midnight visitor who had so frightened the Indians. Bigfoot, Man, Beast, or Myth by Jeff Williams The number of reports from respected people, the finding of footprints in areas too remote for pranksters to expect success, lends credibility to the belief that something is out there, but what? There was a downdraft of cool mountain air following Virgil Larson as he moved down the forested slopes of Mount Shasta. Even though weighted down by chainsaw and tools, Larson moved through the northern California woods with practiced ease. He was a timber faller and he had worked in the woods for 30 of his 47 years. His partner, Pat Conway, was off to the left and Larson could no longer see or hear him. At the base of a towering Douglas fir, Larson sat down for a quick smoke. It was 8.30, Friday, September 3rd. As he smoked and enjoyed the cathedral solitude of the forest, he heard the sound of someone moving toward him from above. The sound of feet breaking the carpet of twigs and underbrush. Idly, Larson looked up and saw a figure moving easily towards him through the light-patterned woods. Must be the forest service guy coming down to check what we're cutting, he mused to himself. He glanced back at the figure, which had closed 30 feet, but was moving away at a tangent. Thinking the ranger had missed him, Larson yelled. At that, the figure turned his head towards Larson, as if seeing him for the first time, but kept moving away in long swinging strides. Larson yelled again at the tall figure as it dropped down the ridge a little and disappeared behind a screen of trees. Larson began to get to his feet to see where it had gone. Abruptly, a few dozen feet below him, the tall creature rose from behind a bush and stared baefully at him for a long second before disappearing. At that moment, I realized I didn't know what the hell I was looking at, and that's when I took off. Larson, a normally quiet and reserved man, ran in terror down the other slope to his partner. Together, he and Conway returned to where Larson had been sitting. That is when they first became aware of the stomach-churning odor in the forest. It smelled rotten and rancid, like an old bear hide, Larson recalled. To estimate the creature's size, Conway went behind the bush where it had been. 
Only by pushing his hat up on a stick could he be located behind the bush that the creature had easily looked over. It had to be about seven feet tall, but I don't know what it was, Larson said. I can only remember it looking over the bush, and I knew it wasn't a bear. Bears don't walk through the woods on two feet. I can only remember from the hairline up. Just dark hair pushed straight back. I can't remember the face at all. Larson studied the burning cigarette between his fingers and quietly admitted. He lies awake now wondering what he saw. Was it Sasquatch? The giant ape-man that thousands believe stalked the vast mountainous forest regions between Northern California and British Columbia? Larson just shakes his head. The shock of seeing something so strange has blanked his mind on the subject. Larson's foreman, when questioned about the reliability of his faller, was blunt. Let me put it this way, said Ralph Gant. If Larson told me he had seen Jesus Christ, I would believe him. Sergeant Walt Bullington, the deputy sheriff who investigated the sighting, said, I think he's telling the truth and he knows it. He's not falsifying. Larson is just one of numerous reliable men who have spent years in the woods and have nothing to gain but scorn of fellow workers who admit to seeing the giant hairy creature commonly called Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Unquestionably, there are mistaking sightings and outright hoaxes. But the number of reports by respected men, the finding of footprints in areas too remote for pranksters to expect success, lends credibility to the belief that something is out there. And that something is generally reported to be about seven feet tall, covered with dark hair and virtually no neck. It has massive shoulders, obviously is heavy, and leaves man-like footprints 14 to 18 inches long and eight inches wide. The reports are not just a new fad. In April of 1840, the Reverend O'Connor Walker Missionary of the Spokane Indians wrote a long letter to a superior filled with misgivings on the future of the Indians. They seem as fated to fade away before the whites as the game of their country. In closing, he had a surprising note. I suppose you will bear with me if I trouble you with a little of their superstition. They believe in the existence of a race of giants which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams on their back at once. They frequently come in the night and steal their salmon from the nets and eat them raw. If people are awake, they always know when they are coming very near by their strong smell, which is most intolerable. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles. Then the stones will begin to hit their houses. Since that early report, stories of Sasquatch have become legend. One of the most controversial pieces of evidence surrounding the creature centers on a short length of 16mm film shot in 1967 by a rancher named Roger Patterson. Patterson, now dead, said he and his partner, Bob Gimlin, were looking for Bigfoot along the rugged Bluff Creek in Northern California when their horses were suddenly spooked. Patterson was thrown but struggled to his feet with camera in hand to make a jerky film of what appears to be a female Sasquatch moving away rapidly at an oblique angle. The creature turns and looks towards the camera 
and her ponderous hairy breasts are visible. Precisely because she had hair in her breasts, the film was rejected by many scientists who note that even on gorillas there is virtually no hair. Also, it walked in an upright manner that was unacceptable to most scientists. It was a powerful rolling gait of considerable speed, yet it did not run. However, even the specialists at Disney Studio could not prove the film a fake. A group of Soviet scientists who are searching for their own Bigfoot, which they call more accurately a relic hominoid, viewed the film and agreed that because of the size of the muscles rippling visibly beneath the hairy coat, it was not likely faked. Wrote Dr. Dmitry Didonskoy, chief of the chair of biomechanics at USSR Central Institute of Physical Culture in Moscow, with all the diversity of the locomotion illustrated by the creature in the footage, its gait, as seen, is absolutely non-typical of man. Apart from the film, footprints with a distinctive hourglass outline are the only tangible evidence that such a giant creature may in fact exist. Apart from the film, footprints with a distinctive hourglass outline are the only tangible evidence that such a giant creature may in fact exist, and those footprints trouble the highly scientific mind of Dr. John Napier, a visiting professor of primate biology at the University of London. In his book, Bigfoot, Napier studied hundreds of samples of the broad prints and said, There is a curious and persuasive consistency about the hourglass footprints. They present an aberrant but nevertheless uniform pattern. This is hard to reconcile with fakery. Napier, a specialist in the anatomy of ape and human feet, also studied casts from a set of prints in Bosburg, Washington that stretched half a mile. Napier was surprised to find that the right foot was a club foot, possibly the result of a crushing injury in childhood. It is very difficult to conceive of a hoaxer, so subtle, so knowledgeable, and so sick, who would deliberately fake a footprint of this nature. I suppose it's possible, but it is so unlikely that I am prepared to discount it. Napier concludes by saying, I am convinced that the Sasquatch exists but whether it is all that is cracked up to be is another matter altogether. There must be something in Northwest America that needs explaining, and that something leaves man-like footprints. The evidence I have adduced in favor of the reality of Sasquatch is no hard evidence. Few physicists, biologists, or chemists would accept it, but nevertheless, it is evidence and cannot be ignored. This conclusion even from such an eminent scientist, sticks in the throat of Dr. William Montagna, director of the prestigious Oregon Regional Primate Research Center. In a scathing denunciation of the Sasquatch legend and its investigators, Montagna wrote in the September Primate News, fascinated by the unknown and goaded by his imagination, man is forever fabricating devils and saints. Nothing is to be gained by arguing with believers. Incapable of sifting reality from fantasy, they swear to have seen the footprints of a Bigfoot or an abominable snowman, Yeti. Even the tricksters who perpetuate these outlandish hoaxes sometimes come to believe in the reality of their creatures. 
Montagna appears unwilling to at least keep an open mind on Sasquatch, but other eminent scientists are pursuing their investigations. Edward W. Cronin Jr., a zoologist who spent two years in the Himalayas looking for the Yeti, concluded it had to exist after awakening one morning to find a clear set of prints in light and unmarred snow outside his tent. The Yeti, which may be a smaller, distant relation to the Sasquatch, passed Cronin's tent and proceeded down a steep and dangerous slope that made it evident to the zoologist that the creature was far stronger than he was. He concluded in an article for the November 1975 issue of The Atlantic, based on his experience, I believe that there is a creature alive today in the Himalayas which is creating a valid zoological mystery. As evidence mounts that both a Yeti and a Sasquatch exist, the question of what exactly it is becomes more pertinent. The leading contender in the minds of a few scientists is Gigantopithecus, a massive creature that existed as late as 500,000 years ago in the Himalayas in China. His few fossil remains indicate he was more than seven feet tall. Dr. Paul Simmons, the senior physical anthropologist at the University of Oregon, told me in an interview that it is conceivable that Gigantopithecus crossed the land bridge to the Bering Strait just as man did some 50,000 years ago. My basic feeling is there is no such thing, but I'm not willing to rule it out, Simmons said. He then added a fascinating bit of evidence that Gigantopithecus might have migrated while other primates, like the gorilla, remained in the tropics. He noted that chimpanzees and gorillas wear their teeth down similarly, and that Gigantopithecus and early man wore their teeth down in the same fashion. So it looks as though there is a similar jaw action, Simmons said. Does that mean they went looking for similar food? At least it means their dietary adaptation was not similar to the chimp and the gorilla who stayed in the tropics. But it is hard to go beyond that, he said. If there is something roaming the great northwest forest, why hasn't someone found conclusive proof? Skeletal remains, hair, or fossils? Such questions make thousands of skeptics react like Den Mott a rancher who has spent most of his 42 years hunting and fishing in the mountains of California. Bigfoot is just a bunch of crap. With all those hunters out there every year, someone would have found one or shot one by now if it was really there. One man who ardently believes both that Sasquatch is in fact out there, but should never be shot, is Peter Brine, a Britisher, actually he's Irish, in his early 50s. Brian has all the rugged good looks of a professional game hunter, which is precisely what he was for 20 years in Nepal. Then, in 1962, he made two expeditions in search of the Yeti. Although both failed, Brian became convinced the Yeti existed. Then, at the urging of Texas millionaire Tom Slick, Brian came to the Northwest to use his hunting skills in finding Sasquatch. For six years, Brian has continued his lonely search. What he terms the, quote, ultimate hunt, unquote, but now, instead of a rifle, he carries the camera. From the modest trailer he calls home in the Dales, Oregon,
Brian points at the dark coniferous forest that begins not far away. Once you go 50 feet into these forests, you simply disappear. It is as dense as any jungle, and we're dealing with a nomadic group or individuals who stay in an area only one day before moving on. This adds to the difficulty of finding them. Brian notes that the soil of the Northwest is too acidic for fossils, and that if a Sasquatch did die in the forest, other animals would eat it and scatter the bones within days. With only a handful of the creatures around and thousands of square miles of extremely rugged mountains, it is conceivable for Sasquatch to remain largely invisible. One only has to recall Ishi, the last of a Stone Age Indian tribe who remained hidden with his family in a canyon only eight miles from Oroville, California in the early 1900s until he voluntarily appeared. The Tassaday tribe and other Stone Age people were found in the Philippine jungles only in 1971. The mountain gorilla was not proven until 1902. Brine, who has never seen or heard a Sasquatch, has seen 16 separate sets of prints that he, a veteran tracker, believes to be the real thing. If he feels sure that Sasquatch is out there, why continue to hunt him down? It doesn't seem important except for one reason. We're not going to get protective legislation for something that is not proven. When it's known to exist, there will be expeditions, and some scientific expeditions can be awfully ruthless. We hope there will be full protection, to the point where even a scientific expedition from the Smithsonian Institution will not be allowed to collect a specimen. Another veteran Sasquatch hunter is George Haas a scholarly 70-year-old man who lives in an Oakland, California apartment filled with books and files on Sasquatch. Haas has the most extensive files on Sasquatch in the country, 3,000 news clippings alone. Like Brian, he is strongly opposed to any talk of killing Bigfoot just to prove it exists. The last thing we need to do is shoot or even capture a specimen. It is more than a rare animal. It may be a primitive man. To kill him would be murder. Indeed, why find him at all? To protect him, some argue? But if Sasquatch is proven to exist, there will be more massive hunts by amateurs and professionals alike. It seems all too conceivable that the pressure of organized drives for Sasquatch, complete with helicopters and listening devices as used in Vietnam, would force the creatures totally out of the area or into extinction. Find Sasquatch, to what end? So he can spend his life behind bars in a zoo? Or be constantly probed and prodded by scientists made cranky because they will have to rewrite their concepts of evolution? If Sasquatch exists, and the weight of the evidence that he does is too much to ignore, then it seems best to let him and our dreams continue happily apart. We may find that we enjoy the legend of Sasquatch much more than the smelly beast itself. Welcome. These are a series of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, William Rowe's Sworn Affidavit. I, W. Rowe, of the city of Edmonton, in the province of Alberta, make oath and say, one, 
that the Exhibit A attached to this, my affidavit, is absolutely true and correct in all details. Sworn before me in the city of Edmonton, province of Alberta, this 26th day of August, A.D. 1957. Signed, William Rowe. Witnessed by W.H. Clark, Assistant Claims Agent, number D.D. 2822. Exhibit A. Ever since I was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, I have studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. But the most incredible experience I ever had with a wild creature occurred near a little town called Titwan Cache, British Columbia, about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. I had been working on the highway near Tetuan Cache for about two years. In October 1955, I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came in sight of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly near that spot the year before. This one was only about 75 yards away, but I didn't want to shoot it for I had no way of getting it out. So I sat down on a small rock and watched, my rifle in my hands. I could see part of the animal's head in the top of one shoulder. A moment later, it raised up and stepped out into the opening. Then I saw it was not a bear. This the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly toward me. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near three hundred pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair, but as it came closer I saw by its breasts that it was a female. And yet... Its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms, and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionately than a man's, about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in, within twenty feet of me, and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The shape of this creature's head somewhat resembled a negro's, the head was higher at the back than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded farther than his nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck 
also was unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I had ever seen. As I watched this creature, I wondered if some movie company was making a film at this place, and that what I saw was an actor made up to look partly human and partly animal. But as I observed it more, I decided it would be impossible to fake such a specimen. Anyway, I learned later there was no such company near that area, nor, in fact, did anyone live up Micah Mountain, according to the people who lived in Tetuan Cash. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that, if I shot it, I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant, hairy creature that lives in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claim are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Just as it came to the other patch of brush, it threw its head back and made a peculiar noise that seemed to be half laugh and half language, and which I can only describe as a kind of a whinny. Then it walked away from the small brush into a stand of lodgepole pine. I stepped out into the opening and looked across a small ridge just beyond the pine to see if I could see it again. It came out on the ridge a couple of hundred yards away from me, tipped its head back again, and again emitted the only sound I had heard it make. But what this half-laugh, half-language was meant to convey, I do not know. It disappeared then, and I never saw it again. I wanted to find out if it lived on vegetation entirely, or ate meat as well, so I went down and looked for signs. I found it in five different places, and although I examined it thoroughly, could find no hair or shells of bugs or insects, so I believe it was strictly a vegetarian. This ends the reading of story number one, William Rose Sworn Affidavit. Story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. My first incident with a creature I could not explain was in summer of 1966. Our family traveled south down the Oregon coast. We crossed over into California, and Dad drove down past Crescent City. We drove back inland toward I-5. There were five of us in the car, Dad, Mom, my older brother, who was 16, myself, then 15, and my younger brother, who was 13. We spent the night in Dunsmuir, California. 
The place we stayed in had small cabins and was west of I-5. I do not know the name of the place. There were several cabins, maybe ten to twelve of them, and a caregiver operator's home. The people working there were a couple in their late forties. They had three large dogs that were shepherd mix. The dogs were very friendly, as my brothers and I played with them, throwing a tennis ball. It got dark early due to the thick forest and trees in the area. About 2 a.m. I awoke to the sounds of dogs whining. The dogs were chained up at the house of the caretakers. A mercury vapor lamp was lighting up the area between the house and our cabin. I believe the distance to be about 60 yards. I could see the dogs by the porch area of the house. They were whimpering and huddled together. I could see they were afraid, and looking out near an outbuilding or garage, I looked towards where they were looking and saw in the street area a huge hair-covered creature walking. It was at least eight feet tall and had long arms. It was just strolling on the small street, then into the woods. I was stunned. I did not know what it was, and I went back to bed, but did not sleep the rest of the night. Next morning the caretaker said something spooked his dogs, as they refused to leave the house after he fed them in the morning. I knew nothing of Bigfoot, and did not want to say anything about what I had seen. The next year my parents bought property in Ashford in Echo Valley. We spent lots of time up there. Dad had a small 16-foot trailer, and the kids slept in a large tent. We saw elk and deer walk through our property all the time. We would also see them in the meadow area, where there were several apple trees. The elk would pick them off the tree, and the deer seemed to feed off whatever dropped from the tree. In the late 70s, we heard weird howling from across the Nisqually River. One night, we heard a very loud scream from down by the river. It sounded like a high-pitched woman scream. Next morning, several people in the place commented about the screams. I, by then, had heard of Bigfoot, and I believed that it was what I had saw in California. I was down at the river, once collecting rocks to circle the fire pit, and I heard grunting from across the river. I left right away, not bothering to take the rocks. In about 1982, a large group of our friends were camping on the property in an old army tent. My younger brother was sleeping next to the tent sidewall. His girlfriend was next to him, and several others were in the tent. He was startled awake when a large, hairy hand reached under the sidewall and grabbed his arm. He yelled, and everyone was awakened. He was so shook up, he armed himself, built up the fire, and locked himself in his truck. He was in his late twenties at the time, and was out of the army. After that, I only went there on day trips, and never camped there again. I know that there are Bigfoot creatures. I have heard them, seen them, smelled them. I don't hunt or fish, or go on my own up in the area unless I am armed. Talk to the people in Echo Valley, and ask them what they have seen or heard. This ends story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. 
Story number three. Introducing British Columbia's Hairy Giants by J.W. Burns. The name Sasquatch was coined in the 1920s by J.W. Burns, though what is believed to be a mispronunciation of an Indian word, and for the most part is used primarily to describe our Canadian cryptid. Many indigenous peoples have varying terms for the wild ones and the forest fathers, but it was through J.W. Burns' writings and articles about the creature that this particular name has become known worldwide. The name Bigfoot first appeared in the October 5, 1958 copy of the Humboldt Times as a headline to an article written by the paper's editor, Andrew Ginzoli, on a local man named Jerry Crew, who had shown up at the paper's office with a plaster cast of a footprint found in Bluff Creek Valley. British Columbian stories about encounters and footprints have been recorded by Indians and settlers alike going back over 100 years but an oral history of Sasquatch encounters by British Columbia Indians goes back much further. J.W. Burns spent many years as a teacher on the Chehalis Indian Reserve beside the Harrison River, about 60 miles east of Vancouver, British Columbia. He wrote numerous articles and stories, which were published in the Vancouver newspapers of the day. He was keen to write about the encounters, which local Indians were stated to have had with the hairy giants, including an article in a major national magazine in 1929, McLean's Magazine, April 1st issue. While those stories certainly did not convince non-Indian society that such creatures actually existed, they did make Sasquatch a household name, so much so that they even named a local inn after the creature. A collection of strange tales about British Columbia's wild men as told by those who say they have seen them are the vast mountain solitudes of British Columbia, of which but very few have been so far explored, populated by a hairy race of giant men, ape-like men. Reports from time to time covering a period of many years have come from the hinterlands of the province that Hairy giants have been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain vastness, far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite, for the reason that no person could be found, or at least nobody came forward with the information that they had obtained a close-up view of these strange creatures. Persistent rumors led this writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. The question relating to the subject was always, or nearly always, evaded with the trite excuse, The white man don't believe. He make joke of the Indian. But after three years of plotting, I have come into possession of information more definite and authentic than has come to light in any previous time. Disregarding rumor and hearsay, I have prevailed upon men who claim they had actual contact with these hairy giants to tell what they know about them. Their story is set down here in good faith. Peter Williams lives on the Chehalis River. I believe that he is a reliable as well as an intelligent Indian. He gave me the following thrilling account of his experience with these people. Peter's encounter 
with the giant. One evening in the month of May, twenty years ago, he said, I was walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Jehalis Reserve. I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder twenty or thirty feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but, as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. It was a man, a giant no less than six and one-half feet in height, and covered with hair. He was in rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I never ran so fast before or since through brush and undergrowth toward the Statlu, or Chehalis River, where my dugout was moored. From time to time I looked back over my shoulder. The giant was fast overtaking me, a hundred feet separated us. Another look, and the distance measured less than fifty. Pushed my boat into the Chehalis, and in a moment the dugout shot across the stream to the opposite bank. The swift river, however, did not in the least daunt the giant for he began to wait it immediately. I arrived home almost worn out from running, and I felt sick. Taking an anxious look around the house, I was relieved to find the wife and the children inside. I bolted the door and barricaded it with everything at hand. Then, with my rifle ready, I stood near the door and awaited his coming. Peter added that if he had not been so much excited, he could easily have shot the giant when he began to wade the river. After an anxious waiting of twenty minutes, resumed the Indian, I heard a noise approaching like the trampling of horse. I looked through a crack in the old wall. It was the giant. Darkness had not yet set in, and I had a good look at him. Except that he was covered with hair and twice the bulk of an average man, there was nothing to distinguish him from the rest of us. He pushed against the wall of the old house with such force that it shook back and forth. The old cedar shook, and timbers creaked and groaned so much under the strain that I was afraid it would fall down and kill us. I whispered to the old woman to take the children under the bed. Peter pointed out what remained of the old house in which he lived at the time, explaining that the giant treated it so roughly that it had to be abandoned the following winter. After prowling and grunting like an animal round the house, continued Peter, he went away. We were glad, for the children and the wife were uncomfortable under the old bedstead. Next morning I found his tracks in the mud around the house, the biggest of either man or beast I had ever seen. The tracks measured twenty-two inches in length, but narrow in proportion to their length. The following winter, while shooting wild duck on that part of the reserve Indians called the Prairie, which is on the north side of the Harrison River and about two miles from the Chehalis village, Peter once more came face to face with the same hairy giant. The Indian ran for dear life, followed by the wild man, but after pursuing him for three or four hundred yards, the giant gave up the chase. Old village Indians, who called upon Peter to hear of his second encounter, nodded their heads sagely, shrugged their shoulders, and for some reason not quite clear, seemed not to wish the story to gain any further publicity.
On the afternoon of the same day, another Indian by the name of Paul was chased from the creek, where he was fishing for salmon, by the same individual. Paul was in a state of terror, for unlike Peter, he had no gun. A short distance from his shack, the giant suddenly quit and walked into the bush. Paul, exhausted from running, fell in the snow and had to be carried home by his mother and others of the family. The first and second time, Peter went on, I was all alone when I met this strange mountain creature. Then, early in the spring of the following year, another man and myself were bear hunting near the place where I first met him. On this occasion we ran into two of these giants. They were sitting on the ground. At first we thought they were old tree stumps, but when we were within fifty feet or so, they suddenly stood up, and we came to an immediate stop. Both were nude. We were close enough to know that they were man and woman. The woman was the smaller of the two, but neither of them as big or fierce-looking as the giant that chased me. We ran home, but they did not follow us. One morning, some few weeks after this, Peter and his wife were fishing in a canoe on the Harrison River near Harrison Bay. Paddling round a neck of land, they saw, on the beach within a hundred feet of them, the giant Peter had met the previous year. We stood for a long time looking at him, said the Indian, but he took no notice of us. That was the last time I saw him, concluded Peter. Peter remarked that his father and numbers of old Indians knew that wild men lived in the caves in the mountains, had often seen them. He wished to make it clear that these creatures were in no way related to the Indian. He believes that there are a few of them living at present in the mountains near Agassiz. That concludes story number three about Sasquatch and J.W. Burns. Story number four. Jacko, British Columbia gorilla captured. British Columbia, July 3rd. 1882. In the immediate vicinity of Number 4 Tunnel, situated some twenty miles above this village, are bluffs of rock which have hitherto been insurmountable, but on Monday morning last were successfully scaled by Mr. Onderdonk's employees on their regular train from Lytton. Assisted by Mr. Costerton and the British Columbia Express Company's messenger, and a number of gentlemen from Lytton and points east of that place, who, after considerable trouble and perilous climbing, succeeded in capturing a creature which may truly be called half-man and half-beast. Jacko, as the creature has been called by his captors, is something of the gorilla type, standing about four feet seven inches in height and weighing about 127 pounds. He has long, black, strong hair and resembles a human being with one exception, his entire body, except his hands, or paws, and feet, are covered with glossy hair about one inch long. His forearm is much longer than a man's, and he possesses extraordinary strength, as he will take hold of a stick and break it by wrenching it or twisting it, which no man living could break in the same way. Since his capture, he is very reticent, only occasionally uttering a noise, which is a half-bark and half-growl, 
He is, however, becoming more attached to his keeper, Mr. George Tilbury, of this place, who proposes shortly starting for London, England, to exhibit him. His favorite food so far is berries, and he drinks fresh milk with evident relish. By advice of Dr. Hannington, raw meats have been withheld from Jacko as to make him savage. The mode of capture was as follows. Ned Austin, the engineer, on coming in sight of the bluff at the eastern end of Number 4 Tunnel, saw what he supposed to be a man lying asleep in the close proximity to the track, and, as thought, blew the signal to apply the brakes. The brakes were instantly applied, and in a few seconds the train was brought to a standstill. At this moment the supposed man sprang up, and uttering a sharp, quick bark, began to climb the steep bluff. Conductor R.J. Craig and express manager Costerton, followed by the baggage men and brakemen, jumped from the train, and, knowing they were some twenty minutes ahead of time, immediately gave chase. After five minutes of perilous climbing, the then-supposed demented Indian was corralled on the projecting shelf of rock, where he could neither ascend nor descend. The query was how to capture him alive, which was quickly decided by Mr. Craig, who crawled on his hands and knees until he was about forty feet above the creature. Taking a small piece of loose rock, he let it fall, and it had the desired effect of rendering the poor jacko of resistance for a time at least. The bell rope was then brought up, and jacko was now lowered to terra firma. After firmly binding him and placing him in the baggage car, off brakes was sounded, and the train started for Yale. At the station a large crowd, who had heard of the capture by telephone from Spuzzum Flat, were assembled, each one anxious to have the first look at the monstrosity. But they were disappointed, as Jacko had been taken off at the machine shops and placed in charge of his present keeper. The question naturally arises— how came the creature where it was first seen by Mr. Austin? From bruises about its head and body, and apparently soreness since its capture, it is supposed that Jacko ventured too near the edge of the bluff, slipped, and fell, and lay where found until the sound of the rushing train aroused him. Mr. Thos, White, and Mr. Gaon, C.E., as well as Mr. Major, who kept a small store about a half-mile west of the tunnel during the past two years, have mentioned having seen a curious creature at different points between camps 13 and 17, but no attention was paid to their remarks as people came to the conclusion that they had either seen a bear or stray Indian dog. Who can unravel the mystery that now surrounds Jacko? Does he belong to a species hitherto unknown in this part of the continent? Or is he really what the trainman first thought he was, a crazy Indian? No one ever positively determined the eventual fate of Jacko, however. It is believed that during the voyage to England the creature died and its corpse was disposed of overboard, which would have been a standard practice during that time period. No one knew for certain. And that ends the reading of Jacko, British Columbia Gorilla Captured. Story number five comes to us directly from Will Jevning. 
It is his interview of Al Hogsden in 2005. There has been little mention of Al Hogsden, the man who would play a pivotal role in the events surrounding Bluff Creek. He became one of the prominent investigators who eventually made history in that region during the 1960s. But only those who have taken a serious look at the history of the Sasquatch issue will be familiar with the role and importance of Hogson. I recently traveled to Willow Creek, and Al consented to give me an interview. In my opinion, he should be included in any discussion of the events that have become historic with regard to the issue of the Sasquatch as a whole. Al Hogson is a humble individual who doesn't consider himself to be important to the issue. He is extremely friendly and a pleasure to talk to. I feel he should be given the respect and attention he is so deserving of, and therefore be placed alongside such big names associated with the Sasquatch issue as John Green, Rene DeHinden, Bob Titmus, Roger Patterson, and Bob Gimlin. These men are all the real pioneers of this subject. They are men who were willing to risk ridicule to bring light to the subject and started it on its way to formal recognition. The following is a transcript of my interview with Al Hogson in 2005. Jevning. What I would like to do first of all is find out about you, where you were born, where you grew up. Hogson. Well, I was born in Illinois, to be honest with you. Born in Illinois in 1923. We came to California during the Depression when my father and mother had done real well with the farm. But things went real bad. Then they lost everything in the crash of the banks. And the money was all gone, and they sold as much as they could, and we loaded us up, and we had eight kids. <laughs> Would you believe that at the time? We came to California. My father worked in Eureka at Hammond's. He worked over there at Hammond's. He worked there, and I don't remember exactly when, but it was before the 1906 earthquake because he was in San Francisco, then Eureka, and lost everything he had in the quake. And then he got back to Illinois and then married and raised a family, and he had done real well. Then the crash. So we moved here to Eureka, and Hammond's was closed. He figured he could go back to work at Hammond's, and well, it was closed, so we wound up out here at Willow Creek, Believe it or not, in 1933 we came to Willow Creek. Yeah, 1933. And Willow Creek wasn't much then, I tell you. We have a picture out here somewhere of it, but there was nothing here. A little bit of gold mining, sniping, and so forth. In fact, it was how we got here. Somebody suggested, well, you might make some money sniping for gold on the Trinity River. Well, that didn't work out. And, and my dad went up towards... Some's bar, and that didn't work out either. So anyway, we still found a little place down there on South Fork, and we managed to raise a garden and caught some fish, and we ate more salmon. <laughs> I got so tired of salmon. We ate a little venison, and we survived. Finally, we got a little money from the sale of the place in Illinois, and there wasn't much money coming in, but there was some later on, and so anyway, we wound up established here in Willow Creek, and I lived here until I went into the service in 1941, 
just before the war. I was in before Pearl Harbor. In fact, I was in Detroit, Michigan, actually Dearborn, where I was attending a school there for the Navy. It was interesting. I didn't meet, but saw Henry Ford there and his son Edsel Ford, who was one of our officers. Anyway, it was interesting. It was interesting in a lot of ways. Well, they had their own steel mill there, and their own locomotives. The engines had no firebox, but they had a boiler, but no firebox. They would run over there to the steel mill and get a hot charge of steel and put it into the boiler to run the engine until it cooled and run back to the steel mill for another charge. It was a very interesting time there. I was in the Navy for five and a half years. I didn't see any action until the last six months. I was over in the Okinawa campaign, uh, there when they dropped the first bomb. The guys were absolutely stunned. They couldn't believe it. Then they dropped the second one, and Japan said they wanted to surrender, so we were operating a squadron of four-engine seaplanes, and they patrolled the North Sea. Anyway, when Japan announced that they were surrendering, we pulled up anchor and headed for Japan. We pulled into Sasabo, Japan, right next to Nagasaki, and it was still smoldering. We pulled in there and was there three days before the Marines arrived. So here come the Marines invading, but the Japanese, there was no fight left in them. That was it. So we were there for a week, week and a half, and we went to Hong Kong and spent six weeks in Hong Kong. We left there just before Christmas, got into San Francisco, I think Christmas Day or something like that. Anyway, I got out of the Navy in 1946, and I worked here and got married and worked on the coast for five years, then came back here to Willow Creek and started this store. Jevning. What kind of store was it? Hogson. Well, we started out strictly as a five-and-dime store, or what you would call a variety store, and at the end... Before we closed, we had branched out and had clothing and a whole bunch of stuff. That was our downfall. Clothing is hard to do, and well, it's hard. Anyway, we were in that, and we had quite a large store, 11,000 square feet, and the medical building at the end of town. That was our building. It still is our building, but at any rate, St. Joe's wanted to lease it, they wanted it worse than we did, so we leased it to them. Which was the best thing that ever happened to us. Even though it was sad and hard for me to get out of the store. Jevning. So, when did you first hear about something like Bigfoot? Hogson. Well, the first I recall was when I came back from the service in 1946, but I'm not exactly sure. My brothers had said something like, well, why don't you and I go over there and catch that ape over across the river? Well, I wasn't interested in catching the ape. I had other things to do. I was young and in my early twenties, and I thought, nah, I wasn't interested. So anyway, that was the first I heard of it. And of course, nobody said it was a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or anything. The word I heard was ape. And we all heard it over there, and it was over here just a couple of miles. Jevning. 
It was something that was common knowledge? Hodgson. Yeah, well, over there, and everyone had heard it, and no one knew what it was. And fact is, one man, he wouldn't believe it wasn't animal. It had to be an animal. That was here, just something wrong with it. He said he thought it was a bear with a broken jaw. Fact is, it wasn't too many years ago before he died, the man. He's been gone several years now, but we still had the store, and he was here in the store, and said, I said to him, what do you think that was over there? And he said, well, I think it was a bear with a deformed throat. Jevning. This was because of the noises they heard? Hogson. Yeah, what they heard, but to him it had to be a bear. It couldn't be anything else. Could be a mountain lion or a bear with a deformed throat. Then a lady who had found tracks, or her daughter had seen the tracks, or had seen it, the creature, we had the first cast I, I had made, was lying on the counter in our store, and she came in and she said, Yeah, that's what was over at our place. Jevning. Well, how did outsiders come to take an interest in Willow Creek, do you know? People like John Green or Bob Titmus, people like that. Hogson. Well, I don't know exactly, but I think news spread pretty rapidly. Chevening. The reporter from Eureka who came out here with Jerry Crew? Hogson. Well, that was a news story. Uh, actually, this lady, who was a very good friend of ours named Betty Allen, she was a guest columnist for the Humboldt Times newspaper at that time, and I'm not sure, but she might have written my name in her column, and, well, she probably did, and anyway, she kept after me, and she said, Al, you should say something about this, meaning strange things being seen. It'd be good for Willow Creek. And of course, at first I said, I'm not having anything to do with it. That's a hoax, and I want nothing to do with it. The fact is, they tried to sell me a copy of the first Titmus cast. Well, not the Titmus cast, Jerry Crew's first cast. Titmus had copies of the first cast Jerry Crew made, and I wouldn't buy it. I said, no, I don't want to buy it. This is a hoax, and I don't want anything to do with a hoax. When she, Betty Allen, finally got me interested, I, I said, okay, I'll take you up. So my boys were small, and my wife and we all got into the station wagon. We took her and this other guy, and we all went up there. Jevning. Now, is that up in the Bluff Creek area where they were building the roads? Hogson. Yeah, we went up to the Louse Camp. That's where we stopped, and then went on up from there. Jevning. What time period would that have been? Hogson. Oh, that would have been 1963. That's when she, Betty Allen, talked me into going up. And then she said, Al, why don't you go down to the creek? Well, I still wasn't too impressed with the tracks. On the road, they had covered them up with bark. And, well, we uncovered them. And sure enough, there were tracks there. And I understand that because the logging trucks were going by all the time, and they'd fill them up with dust. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any good tracks at all. In fact, the rest of the tracks were wiped out from that very thing. But anyway, we made casts of those tracks, and then she suggested, Al, why don't you go down to the creek and 
see if there's anything there. And I did, and sure did find tracks there. My wife to this day says that maybe somebody made them for me. Well, by golly, you don't know for sure. So anyway, that hooked me. I made a lot of trips up there, and I don't know other than the fact that through her call, I, well, I don't know if she wrote about me, but I think she did. And so, word spread. Jevening. So, when anyone came into town, you were the guy to see? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. So, about the same time, Roger Patterson stopped at the store to see me, and John Green, about the same time. I don't remember seeing Rene de Hinden, except when he was with John Green. I, I can't remember seeing Titmus unless it was with John Green either, but Oh, I don't remember. It's been so long, I just don't remember. I didn't keep track of things like that. Jevning. Now, did the loggers or road builders ever stop at the store and tell you things they had seen? Hogson. Well, most generally not. You know, what the reason was is, in fact, some of them told me afterward, after the fact, hey, we saw tracks, but we didn't want all those people up there in our way. We're trying to make a living. Fact is, a lot of them simply hampered their operations. When a bunch of guys went up there with cameras and expecting to get the news media and everything else up there, and, well, that's what happened. A lot of people came into the store, and I'd shake my head, and I came in and find that some of them had driven in from Los Angeles and expected to catch him. Bigfoot, you know, over the weekend. And that's exactly what they told me. I just thought, come on, you guys, you're crazy. Then, over the years, I come to realize that they're everywhere, Sasquatches, not just up there in Bluff Creek area. Well, I told John Green once that that's a mecca out there for Bigfoot hunters. Anyway, that's kind of how I got into all this. I still don't consider myself anything. I may never have, but that's okay. Jevning. When Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin got the film, they came to see you, is that correct? Hogson. Well, yeah. What happened was, John Green had called me on a Thursday, I think, and said, Al, would you meet me at my chartered plane at Orleans? Then there was an airstrip there in those days, and not anymore, and that's a good thing because it was so bad that someone would eventually get killed there. Anyway, he had chartered a plane, and he had someone with a tracking dog that was coming. They wanted to go up there where the tracks had recently been found. And I said, sure, I'll meet you, John. So my wife said she would watch the store. My older son and I took the station wagon and went to Orleans and waited for the plane to come in. When it sat down, John and the dog handled Earl. Well, I'm not sure who was with them, but I think it was De Hinden. Jevning. Was this before Roger Patterson got the film? Hogson. That's correct. So, we went up there. We got into the station wagon. Mike, my son, and I was driving. Mike was in the back seat with the dog handler. John was in the front seat, and DeHinden was in the back with the dog. The dog handler said, that dog is going to follow it. And when he got there, very quickly he said, it's going to take care of that dog, and I'm next, referring to what made the tracks. That's exactly what he said. Jevning. He was afraid the creature was going to get them? 
Fox said, that's right. And so I didn't think too much about it. Anyway, we stopped there at a little store up Bluff Creek to get some things to eat. Well, they hadn't brought anything. We stopped and got some stuff. John told me that I had loaned him a hundred dollars, and I, well, I don't remember it, but I took his word for it. He says I loaned him a hundred dollars. Well, he didn't have time to convert his Canadian money into U.S. dollars, so anyway, they bought some things to take up that night to the campground. We came back out of the store, and that dog handler just had a fit. Here was Mike with his arm around that dog's neck. The handler said, that dog's a killer. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, kids and dogs. But, well, he just couldn't believe it. Anyway, we got up there just before dark, and there were tracks. I only saw two sets of tracks. Originally, there was three, but I never saw the third one. But I did see two sets, two different sizes. So anyway, I had promised Roger Patterson that I'd let him know if tracks showed up. Jevening. He'd asked you previously to do this? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. He had asked me previously if I'd call him, and I said, sure I will. Well, I had no idea how well he and John got along or anything. I had no idea, so I, I didn't call until John left. When John and the other guys had left, I called Roger, and I told him what I did. I said, I'm sorry, I'm concerned how you guys get along. He said, well, I think I'll come down anyhow. I said, well, they are probably clear out of the country by now. I expected there were only one or two, but I don't know. They're probably gone. And he said, well, I I've been wanting to come down anyhow. I think I'll come down. And that's the last I heard from him until the day he took the film. And he stopped in from the store and told me. Al, he says, I got a picture of the son of a buck. Anyway... That's what happened there, and since then, long after that, only a couple years ago, I found out who found the tracks in the first place. I know the guy, and hesitate to reveal his name, because I'm not quite sure if he would want it known. He's an Indian fellow, and believe it or not, it's taken me a long time to talk to some of these people who were involved in some of these things. I'm not concerned about talking to them. I've talked to them about other things, but... Not about this. Hesitant about doing something to stop the trust, you know, between us, so I, I don't do that, reveal identities, for that reason. I do know him. Nice guy. And he said, Al, he told me, you know where those tracks were? He said, way up there on the ridge, way back. And he said that, well, I was the last guy out. Jevning, was he part of the logging crew up there? Hogson, yeah. Yeah, he was running it. He run that show up there. He wasn't the owner, but he run it, and he said that I was the last guy that night, and I was the first one in in the morning. There had been just a little shower of rain, and he said you could tell these are fresh tracks, and they went down this road and said that if anyone came in to fake the tracks, well, they would have had to come clear from Pequon up over the bridge, which is a long way through there. Jevening. There weren't too many roads through there yet, were there? Hogson. No. No, and there still isn't that many, but, you know, in that area anyway, but he said it was almost impossible for somebody to walk in and make fake tracks like that.
He said it was almost impossible because, well, there'd have been tracks of whoever made the fake tracks, too. So Roger met me at the store, and he told me that he got pictures of him, you know, the Bigfoot, and I talked to him for a long time that night. He says we got to get back up there. This other friend of mine who worked for the Forest Service, he called me later, and he says, Al, come on down to the forestry, and Sil McCoy and I both went down with Roger Patterson and with Gimlin and talked that night, well, I don't know how long, a lot longer than we should have, because, well, they were anxious to get up back there to their horses. Well, when we left down here, I don't know, but it was late then, and when we got in there, and they had problems getting out. Those were some interesting experiences. There are so many things I'd like to see. I'd like to see one, a Sasquatch. I don't expect to anymore, but you never know either. Chevening. After the film was made, Patterson's, it, it seemed like it got really quiet up there at Bluff Creek. Was anything seen again after that? Hogson. No, not to my knowledge there wasn't, but that doesn't mean anything. Like you said, so many people don't say anything, and there is so much controversy about these things being fake and what have you, and I think a lot of people don't, well, didn't want to get wound up in something like this. I don't blame them. I'd see it the same way. In fact, I know people right today that don't want to because they say, well, I don't want to get in this. I don't want to get in this thing here. They may tell me, but so many of them don't want to tell me because they're afraid, and like this National Geographic film crew who was here about a year ago, that just made me sick because some of the people that told me they didn't want to come up front, well, anyway, to talk about their experiences, but then they didn't like the way they were portrayed in this manner. Jevning, I'm not familiar with this. Hogson, you're not? Jevning, National Geographic did a film on this? The Sasquatch? Hogson, yes, oh yes, a year ago. And I busted my butt to get people for them that had seen a Sasquatch. I had about a half dozen people that came forward, but you know something? They had to portray Wallace, Ray Wallace, and some of these people and, and make them look like a bunch of fools. Jevening. You knew Ray Wallace, Hogson. Oh, yeah, I knew him. Jevening. He used to run a logging crew up there at Bluff Creek, didn't he? Hogson. Well, he was quite a wheel. I mean, as far as uh, well, he contracted and uh, d did a lot of contracting and road building, and well, this wasn't the only place. In fact, it's one of the guys that was up there, one of the guys that knew him very well, fact is, he told me that Ray actually practically raised him. He was an orphan, and Ray gave him a job and took care of him. And he says, I don't think Ray did all this crap. They say that, that he did. Jevning. All the fake stuff? Hogson. Yeah, now he and I both agree that Ray was great for a joke, but he wasn't a guy to fake all this stuff and try to make it look real. Jevning. I see. Hogson. There's no doubt in my mind that he was a prankster. He loved it, but like this fellow said who knew him so well, he was hardly ever up there. He was out someplace else bidding on more jobs to keep his crews working. Chevening. 
Another thing I was interested in was, how did you come about putting the museum together? Hoxson. Well, you know, the museum was put together here initially by a group of Willow Creek people, including my sister, and I had a small part back, well, nothing really important. And I understand initially, according to her, my sister, oh, my son, the youngest son, mentioned to her husband, who is now deceased, that, oh, too bad we don't have a museum for some of the local stuff, not Bigfoot. And so consequently, they wound up putting this together with that group of people from Willow Creek, from all different walks of life. And so then when Bob Titmus died, well, he made it known to John Green that he'd like for his things would you know come up here, providing he would have a separate room. He said, no, we, we don't want it in a little corner, but in a separate room. So from then I went to the Chamber of Commerce, and they weren't interested. And I went to the museum board, and well, they went for it. One guy, though, was so dead set against it about being hoaxed. Well, he resigned from the board. At any rate, that was how they built that wing over there. They raised a hundred-something thousand dollars when, when they built that. We talked to the local Chrysler agency and put on golf tournaments to pay for it. And then Simpson Logging and some others donated a lot of materials and built that building. Jevning. Do you get a lot of people that come through and show a lot of interest in the museum? Hogson. Oh, yeah, and anyway, that's how it got put together. Some people are die-hard skeptics yet today who say, Ah, Bigfoot. We don't need Bigfoot, of all things. One of the people that thinks this way was the executive secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, and well, her husband worked for the Forest Service for years, and he was a friend of mine, and never saw anything. So, to her, it doesn't exist because her husband never saw anything. But that's the way she is. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's hard for me sometimes because this has brought more people to Willow Creek. Jevning. Al, is there anything you'd like to say about the issue of Sasquatch itself? Hogson. Well, I absolutely believe. I've come to believe they exist. It took me a long time to come to that conclusion. Fact is, when I really positively become a believer, was during putting all this together here. I'll tell you why. I don't have any idea where your religious beliefs are, but what happened? We, at the time, had a Bible study at our house every Friday night. After this one Friday night, after we had put the museum together, I told the Bible study that night what had happened, and then when everyone had left except this one couple... Well, the wife came up to me and she said, Al, you know, I saw one. She told me and she said, I don't want you to tell anyone. My family laughed at me too much already. I don't want more people laughing at me. And so that is why I truly became a believer. There was no doubt in my mind she wasn't lying. And they had a hunting cabin somewhere below Mark's Ferry there and back up a ways. They were hunting, and, well, she wasn't hunting, but she was at the cabin, and she and her mother were sitting outside on lawn chairs, and her son come up the road. Apparently the road, you know, come up where they could see, and she said she saw it coming, 
and she said, there's something following him. And as it got closer, she saw what it was, and it got up there, and she said it just stood right there and looked at her. She could tell me right away exactly what it looked like. Jevening. Well, Al, that should do it. Thank you. I sure appreciate the interview. Hogson. Well, I hope it'll help you, and maybe people will find it interesting. I wish I could remember more of the details of the things that happened here, but I really didn't pay attention. I, I, I did, and I didn't. I knew Jerry Crew. I knew him well and never asked him about it, the things what happened round the Bluff Creek area in the 1950s. I saw him many years afterward and uh, still didn't ask him about it. And what really got me was he wasn't alone when he took those first casts of tracks. There was a fellow by the name of J.Q. Hunter and another named Jess Pascal with Jerry Crew. That information was not known until the symposium two years ago. On a Saturday, they went up there and they found tracks. They didn't have any plaster of Paris, no camera, nothing. So they came back to Willow Creek to get plaster of Paris. Well, it was too late that night, so they went up Sunday. Well, Jerry and this other guy went up. J.Q. Hunter oh, couldn't go because he was preaching that Sunday. He was the pastor there at the Bible church. So the two of them went up, and they made those casts. I knew all those people. They were such great people. Although Al Hogson is seldom mentioned in books written about the Sasquatch, he is one of the pivotal sources in the history of this subject, as were the events that took place in Bluff Creek, Northern California, between 1957 and 1967, these really captured the public's attention on the subject. Today, with the passing of time and people who were directly involved in some of the important events that brought the subject of the Sasquatch to the public consciousness, controversy about those events abounds, and, unfortunately, it is being created by those eager to gain attention and notoriety by any means, positive or negative. For example, Jerry Crew's plaster cast impressions of some of the footprints he and other workers found around their equipment at the work site are today being called into question by members of Ray Wallace's family. They claim that Wallace made wood feet to play a joke on workers. However, Roger Patterson wrote about Wallace's reaction when he saw the footprints that work crews had found, and he was as mystified as the others. Furthermore, Al Hogson, who knew Ray Wallace well, stated that he never believed that Ray was behind any hoax. The fact is that footprints have been found literally by the thousands of various sizes over decades prior to the Bluff Creek finds and long after Wallace's death. This in itself lends credibility to the findings. Al Hogson became the person to contact when outsiders such as John Green and Rene DeHinden came to Bluff Creek. Hogson knew many of the workers who discovered strange footprints, and he knew them to be honest individuals. Perhaps the most enduring event for which Al should be remembered is Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin obtaining the only film footage to date of a Sasquatch. Al said that Patterson had asked him to notify him if tracks showed up. So after the trip, 
Greenland to Hindenburg in September 1967 with the tracking dog, where footprints were found. Al did just that. And the rest is history. This ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then... <laughs>